Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to blue and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 dollars or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Really don't listen. James Bond is coming back to the big screen in cinemas in the UK. And we're hoping to go to every one of the 25 films. Join us as we celebrate the 60th anniversary of our favourite British agents by watching them all in order. We hope you guys are watching them too, so please let us know your thoughts. You can find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And our podcast is available on iTunes and Spotify, as well as video episodes on YouTube. Simply search for Really 007 Pod. 1989's Bond film marked the end of an era for many involved with the Bond franchise, including John Glenn, the director, and also Timothy Dalton in his second and final appearance as 007 in Licence to Kill. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Killing me won't stop anything, Sanchez! See you in hell! <laughs> this private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You're going after Sanchez, aren't you? Are you crazy? Make a sound, and you're dead. No! Your license to kill is revoked. Effective immediately. In my business, you prepare for the unexpected. Problem solved. I'm more of a problem eliminator. Where it ends, Commander. He's got to be stopped. 
In a bit of a change of the formula this week, we first discuss Licence to Kill, having seen it on the big screen at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, with a massive array of Bond fans, young and old, from all over the country and beyond. It was a pleasure to watch it with them, and of course after that we had an amazing Q&A with stunt legend Paul Weston, interviewed by none other than John Orty, the broadcast extraordinaire behind the stunts. You can catch that interview on our YouTube channel as well as on our audio channels on iTunes and Spotify and the rest. We discussed first of all that screening as well as our own experiences of watching Licence to Kill when it was finally released nationwide at the end of July. Well good afternoon gents. We have come back from London for what was an extraordinary weekend of Bond, of stunts and just great to meet Bond fans from well Maybe not all over the world, but all over the UK, certainly. Yeah. And and John, uh, I have to say, uh, John Orty is with me and John Kell. And John Orty, of course, uh, interviewed Paul Weston and arranged all that. So it was a bumper day. We saw Licence to Kill, Prince Charles, first of all. And I don't know, there's quite a lot to, to unpack, as the saying goes, isn't there? But what was the what was the sort of... Have you been, John, John Orty? To uh, to the Prince Charles before we've we've discovered our first issue. Never invite two yeah. people with the same name on the same show. <laughs> um, uh, I've been to the, the last time I was at the Prince Charles was about a month or so before to see uh, Honor Majesties, which I which was organised by the guys from uh, uh, Spy Hard. And again, that was that was kind of the first time that I was familiar with certain people meeting them for the first time and i've been familiar with their twitter handles or whatever it was that we communicated in the past and so to go and and see everybody when we went down there for license to kill was just remarkable and the, the great thing about it was the amount of people that was there it was so great that the the, yeah. the cinema were thrilled it was uh, they were sensational they had a they had a great time and they really did they looked after us i must admit I, they've, they've yes. uh, done a great job so it was great to see all of those people and to see the movie just get all those belly laughs in all the right places and and score with a big audience uh, where maybe maybe at the time when i saw it back in 89 Maybe it didn't hit all the right spots, but mm. it wasn't an audience full of Bond fans, and and that was the that was the big big thing for me was the amount of laughs and stuff. That, that it's a funny movie. I've rewatched it again since, and I thought I would. I oh. don't remember it being a funny movie, but it's a funny movie. There's no doubt about it. There's some great gags, great action, and it's a, it's a great experience. I think it proves that you can do both in one film, and that has run from the beginning of the series, really, mm. right through. You know, there are. Even in the, the more serious ones, there are moments of light relief, even if they're quick. Even like Casino Real, you know, there are the odd gags in there. It just helps the audience sort of feel at home, really. Yeah. I suppose, you know, you've got the Bond films, which seem to be a lot more fun, like Diamonds. I know you're a big fan of that, uh, John. But this is, this is a different one. This is, uh, this is an unusual one in that, like you say, well, what, just first of all, what was it like seeing it the first time at the cinema? I mean, that must have been... We, yeah. we would have loved it. It was the, uh, it was the press screening back in June of... 89. I was a mere child in arms. I was going to say, how are you old <laughs> I must have been, uh, how old was I, 16? 16, maybe? 15, 16? And had arranged, here's the story, I'd arranged to meet Bob Foster, my buddy Bob, Great, Bob Foster. because 007 magazine used to have a, a fan page at the back, and you could, like a pen pal thing, and you could, you could write a letter in, and they would publish your address so that people, other Bond fans from all over the world, could then correspond with you. And that's how that started, you see. Well, unbeknownst to me, Bob was 20 minutes down the road from where I used to live. <laughs> so, oh. It was the weirdest thing. 
So he said, look, I'm going to meet, I'm going to the License to Kill thing. I'll meet you there. I said, oh, super. I went with my dad because, uh, you know, I couldn't get down on my own and all these other bits of pieces. We went down the train. We got there and we couldn't find it, you know, primarily because <laughs> I had no idea what he looked like. Now, that, and of course, nowadays you go, right, I'm going to meet this guy. Oh, he looks like this because you look yeah, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that didn't exist back then, you know, and uh, apart from me having to go up to hundreds of people going, excuse me, are you Bob Foster? No, I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> excuse me, are you? No, no, you're not either. <laughs> Instead of me having to do that, I'm waiting for a guy to come up to me and go, ah, you're John, you know? So it never actually happened and it wasn't until about oh. a fortnight later when we finally got to meet but um it was an ex- extraordinary event cubby was there cubby turned up john glenn was there i think michael wilson was there as well and uh, they didn't do anything on stage initially but afterwards i seem to remember they were around in the foyer and uh, i did get an autograph i got i got cubby's autograph and john Glenn's. oh wow um, oh. but and then of course cubby was in the he was in the uh, the roller the roller was outside the cub one oh brilliant <laughs> So that was all, it was all very exciting and, and it was all a bit, a great deal to take in because all of a sudden I'm, I thought, hang on, that's the, that's the producer of the movie. This, this, it never really dawned on me. And then, of course, uh, years later when, when I saw photographs of the event, you know, I couldn't find me anywhere. Bob was no. everywhere. He was in every <laughs> Bloody hell, he's there. Look, that's him again. He was all over the place. Um, and that's really where the whole Bond thing started. But I tell you what, it was extraordinary because also from... So we, we were given... Or the, the, the 007 International Fan Club were given a quantity of tickets, evidently from Eon, presumably. So they were they were distributed. And we were in... It was the press show. So we were in with the press. Just sat in front of us was Barry Norman. Of course, was doing the the film film eighty nine at the time. And why not? Uh, and then there was um, the guys. I'm trying to remember who was doing going live. Was it going live or it wasn't Sarah? Green. It was Andy Peters. Uh, oh, Emma. Emma. Um, Emma. Yeah. Roy? Yes. Oh, That's Emma Thorpe. So uh, there was Andy Peters and her were there, and so you'd see all these television people that you say, "Oh, I've seen him or her on the TV." Yeah. And uh, Eve Pollard was there, one of the good journalists from the uh, one of the broadsheets. So I remember seeing them there. And then, of course, later on, you get to read their reviews or, or see their reviews on the TV. Oh, I was there at the time. And it, it, there was a couple of moments where it hit all of the all of the beats in the movie and had the same type of reaction that we had that day when we saw it together. And there were a number of occasions where there was, you know, that that um, head exploding for the first time was. Okay, I was cut to pieces, but uh, back then, you know, but uh, there was still moments of <gasps> there was that that sharp intake of breath when when that that went off, and uh, that was mentioned in a couple of those reviews, going, you know, it's, it's awfully graphic for a Bond movie and all this sort of stuff. Um, was but, it which cut was it then? Was it? I know they've since released them on Blu-ray and they put in the yeah, they've got the seconds. full cut now. That one we saw the other day, yeah. the absolute full length version. Okay, there's a moment where the head you just see it. You may not even see. It could even have been something very similar to a television edit, where you see it and then it cuts to the glass being red, and you yes. don't actually see that. You know, you don't see that moment as it gets bigger and bigger, and then the explosion. Even that, and as John Glenn said himself, they had to they had to take a scream off the soundtrack just to get a fifteen. You know, it was really very very difficult at the time. The um, the, the, the the people responsible for those certificates were 
really very, very stringent as far as what they could and couldn't get away with. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was maybe hard work for them, but I mean, we, we saw the final thing the other day and, and uh, it, it looked magnificent, but it was, it was great to, uh, to watch it again with... with um, and how many? I oh know I stood there on stage and I said, "How many? How many people have, have uh, never seen the movie on the big screen before?" And almost the entire theatre put their hands up. Wow! I felt so <laughs> old. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> when did you? When did you first see it, John? I, I presume growing up. Uh, one no, of the ones I was, I was twelve years old. So oh, so quite old. Uh, yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's the. I think I've mentioned in the podcast before. I probably lived quite a sheltered life. It was probably the first fifteen certificate film I ever saw. I remember like having to tell my mum and dad, yeah, it's a 15, but I'm collecting all the bonds. Can you get it for my birthday kind of thing? And they, they were happy they got it because they thought at the end of the day, it's a James Bond film. You know, it's not yeah. going to be, it's not going to be too bad. And I remember watching it the first time and just thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. And there might have been, there might have been that like cocky 12 year old attitude of I'm watching a 15, I'm well hard. Yeah. But, but I just, it never felt out of place for me. Like I remember getting books like the essential bond and those kind of things. And it was very much, it was always seen as the black sheep along with majesties in terms of how it was bonds gone rogue. And, but it never felt out of place. It always felt as part of the canon. And, and I, and I do think there's an element of is that when you are watching back something, and you haven't seen it when it was first released. You you just accept it as part of the canon. So maybe some of the issues that maybe we've had with some of the Craig films recently has been because we see them for that first time and we think, oh, I'm not sure about that. But, you know, retrospectively, you, you, you start to appreciate them for what they were. And I think that's happening with Spectre at the moment. I think a lot of people all of a sudden go, yeah, there's some fun bits in Spectre and stuff. And and I think we're probably seeing a bit more of a reason view. But because of that, I never had the disadvantage of struggling with the change of tone in this film. This, to me, was always my favourite Bond film ever. Yeah. Always has been. Because there was always that balance, wasn't there, between the... the um the direction that the Living Daylights took and then the change of direction yes. that License to Kill yeah. took. And, and it's, I- a good, it's a good three run. You know, so if you go from A View to a Kill, which, yes, there's loads more silly bits, fun bits, but there is a, there is a dark edge to it. Mm. And then you get Tim and it gets a bit darker still. And then fully onto License to Kill. Yeah. I think it runs quite well. I, that's why I don't think it... And we will see them in a row at the cinema again. And I just don't think it, it it feels as jarring when you do that. I, I don't think it feels as jarring. And and I think because the tone of License to Kill fits Tim's Bond so well, yeah. that's why, especially this time, the jokes just hit home so much yeah. better. Because like in Living Daylights, I'm not I don't subscribe to this view, but sometimes the, the one of the criticisms are that some of the jokes are a bit Roger esque. And Tim can um, Tim can actually like not pull them off, but do you know what I mean? It, it, they don't they don't land as well. Like salt mm. corrosion is the perfect example. Yeah. But as you get if, as you get further into the film, so you you start to understand Tim's humour. So one of the best things is his absolutely exasperated look when he's telling Kara to go around the back of the uh, oh yeah, the, and he's and he basically says for f's sake under his breath, yeah, and yeah. and. And then it's funny. And it's like the catch, that's the sardonic humour that you need for yes. Tim. And Switch then they, the bloody machine up. Yeah, exactly. And then they pull that into Licence to Kill. 
because it fits the tone of that film. See, but I, I still think that that um, Living Daylights was kind of uh, written originally. Maybaum's written it based around Roger. Yes, it's been tweaked slightly for Pierce when they've suddenly got ah, we've signed Pierce, and then Timothy's had to come in and pick the bones out of it. You know, I whereas License to Kill has been written for him. Ah, Absolutely. he's Bond now. So Maybaum then tweaks it and changes it and makes it more him. And I think that's why it works because it's better suited for him. So. And I, I, I've been to pretty much every one of the screenings so far, um, bar Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. And it might just be because it was a Bond geek fest, but there has not been anywhere near the amount of laughter in any of the screenings we've been to as consistency as there was at that license to kill one. Yeah, that was it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Yeah, it um, was it was great. It was also <laughs> very exciting sitting next to Paul who kept going yeah. once in a while elbowing me going, That's me that is <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that. Oh, I know. I know. Is that? Yeah, that's. Me. Oh, I thought that was you. So that used to. That was quite entertaining as well. But, uh, uh, rib marks from where he's giving me the elbow. Yeah, a little bit. That's one of the things. Great, great was wasn't it? The, the the burning at the end. Even Paul said afterwards that there was an extra few seconds that they cut. But that's the most I've ever seen it. On the, on the yeah, cinema, because he describes it in such a way that yeah, you know he's he worked out an entire routine that was very clearly shot and was much longer than what we've seen there. Where he yeah. falls to the ground, he gets back up again. He's he's tapping his way along the side of the tanker, so he's pushing his toes up against the um, uh, the stones that he's he's laid out some stones so he can. That's as far as I can go. So a lot of that was all taken out, and uh, I mean it was fairly graphic enough as it was, but you, you could imagine what that full shot would have been, and how the uh, the sensor would have gone. Oh, how am I going to do this? You know, and, and and make it make it a PG, which I suppose is what they were trying to do originally. So that's what they plumped for everything else. Because there wasn't, I don't think there was a twelve back then, was it? That no, no, no. Golden Eye first, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah. So that would have meant that. Um, There's all been twelve of this since then, since Golden Eye. Yeah. Yeah. They've all been twelve after. They were PGs originally. I think I, I was. It was um, Spielberg who was the one responsible for creating the PG thirteen, wasn't he? With, yes. I think it was Temple of Doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's something you've you've lo- you've lost a bit, haven't you? In a sort of a mass popcorn blockbuster. I want it a bit darker. Sorry, and and it must have been a big thing for you know Cubby and John Glenn or whatever to try and push the case to say, well, no, we want this to be a fifteen because <laughs> back then. Uh, the difference between a PG and a 15 was very big. Oh, yeah. It was all similar to the 15 to 18 stuff. Certainly. And there's quite a lot in it that I think now it probably would be a, a harder 12A, wouldn't it? Mm. Uh, I think they could just about get away with that. You know, they, they always have one F word, don't they, in every 12A. I remember from Titanic onwards, it was like, we're allowed one, so let's have one. Let's in have one, and let's make it a good one. <laughs> it's just got ridiculous. Yeah, they're, they're allowed oh. three now. Oh, are they? Right, well, sign of the time, John. It's, it's disgraceful, isn't That's it? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Bond, hasn't there? My word. <laughs> Judy Dench, potty mouth. <laughs> oh, she's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but it was great to see, first of all, when we got there, you know, we've been doing this for, what, 18 months, whatever, this podcast, and all these names and people you see on the internet, like you said, John, and Actual real people exist. (laughs) 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 Real people. Poking people. Good God, you're so real. 
when when that when John John Mitchell, uh, one of the uh, competition winners, and uh, he came yes. up to me afterwards and he said, "Oh, I'm John." I said, "Oh, John, how are you? Great to see you." And almost in because he said, well, "Would I be able to get a photograph with uh, with?" Um, he said, "Oh, yeah." Originally, you know, would you be able to get a photograph? And I said, "Yes, of course." You know, and he said, "You look through here and and, and point push that." <laughs> no, I, I take it. Oh, right, fair enough. Well, yeah. <laughs> Shot down in flames, but then uh, when I read, he said, I've come down from Glasgow. I went, what? Yeah, wow, come from Glasgow, that's unbelievable. You know, yeah, you must have only that that week, obviously, would have been announced as, as, a, yeah. as a ticket winner. And uh, right, I'm off, and so it go, off he goes, you know, comes on down and, and has a wonderful time. It was just a joy, it was just a great thrill. Yeah. These people, you know, that excited, fans that excited about a movie like this, they will, it doesn't matter where they are in the country. They come down and, and they'll they'll do whatever they can to to, to spend a bit of time with us. And it was it was lovely meeting those people that you you know you only know from Twitter handles and yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> and now I recognise him because his his Twitter photo is the one yeah. that he took. So uh, yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. That is fantastic. There was there was some other people I know came from uh, Scotland and I- Ireland, I think as well. Yeah, really? wow, great to yeah. see them. Yeah, um, I mean we <laughs> it's only two hours for us, but the idea of Traveling to watch a Bond film, and there actually being I don't know 100 150 people there who who really love this film, mm. just overwhelming because it we've gone through most of our lives sort of being I don't know what's your favourite Bond film? Oh, License to Kill. What? Which one's that? One? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah, exactly. I used to get that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you when you sort of describe it a bit more, they might remember it and. Oh yeah, Timothy Dalton. Yeah, well, he wasn't that good. He was only into, wasn't it? You know, you get the usual. He didn't play as well. You know, you're not an expert like we are. <laughs> but we are trying to get the word out for License to Kill, and I think this was the perfect opportunity to sort of do that and give back a bit of love for it. I think there's only there's only one gentleman who isn't that keen on it who's in the audience who shall remain nameless. Oh, he's not keen on most that? things, though. To be fair, truth <laughs> uh, known, but uh, they'll be you know, each to their own. I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised he made it out the house, frankly. But he's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he yes, come out and be offended by everything. But there we are. What could you do? Um, but it was uh, uh, was a terrific experience to see all of these people in one place and 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 to 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 have the same sort of passion about it as we do. You know, yeah. For, uh, yeah. and and to, to to come out and go, yes, we're we're going to come and. To, Rows and rows of people. It was staggering to stand there yeah. with these people. There was absolutely yeah. wonderful, really very, very impressive. Uh, and of course, you know, saying we're going to do this, and then the next thing, all of these tickets get sold. Oh yeah. my goodness, it's crazy. So it is, uh, we did think there might be like ten of us or something like that. I know. First organised. Obviously, having Paul there helps. Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I would say that. Not having Paul there would have made a big difference. No two ways yeah. about that. However, you know, for Paul to say yes, I've come along and we'll, we'll do something was terrific. It was great mm. fun to do. Uh, and I think we we were talking. I think the last time we saw it was probably together. I think we saw it many moons ago together. He hadn't seen it for a while, so it was good to good to see bits and pieces. And it still stands up. You know, oh, yeah, better than it ever has done. That the sound was very good. The audience uh, thing was very good. It was, it was, it was a great all-round experience. Another thing which I thought was very interesting, which which I thought was fabulous the first time around, because I caught it the first time around, but I think a number of people in the, in the audience had maybe caught it for the first time, was the Bond theme and Ricochets, which they maybe heard for the first time. 
Oh uh, yeah, and you could hear that oh, that rumble go around the audience. Wait a minute, was that the? No, that was. I think they heard it for the first time there on that day, which was just amazing. It just sound more far more obvious. At oh the yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you wouldn't catch it unless you knew. No, it no, like not at all. Snake, but it's um, far more obvious. And I, I also said to Paul about um, the one of the guards, Carl Cefalio, is an American stuntman, and he's the guy that's uh, killed by the electric eel. Um, oh yes, you have. Oh, yeah. He said, "I'm yeah. always really pleased that uh, Paul put me forward for that job." He said, "Because <laughs> you know, when, when you're in a Bond movie, you want to die in a special, unique way." Yeah, yeah absolutely. How many people have been electrocuted or even <laughs> killed by an electric eel? So, well, you're the only one that's been killed by an electric eel. There's two people been electrocuted, but that's you. And he went, "That's fantastic." He said, "I'll take that." So, you know, he was thrilled yeah. to be part of that movie. That's another graphic death, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's the most John Glenn thing going, isn't it? Because John Glenn absolutely loves putting animals in his film. And oh, yeah. He's on record yeah. saying that. And so then that's like, that's the 15 rated version of a John Glenn death, isn't it? Is that, you know, <laughs> we, we've stepped yeah. away from the mystery of the mechanical crocodile eating somebody in Oxford. And not all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we've got oh, it's not an issue at all. It's it's genius. <laughs> <laughs> That's never in doubt. But now we've gone to electric eel deaths and people lying in pasta. Sorry, I mean maggots, not pasta. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and the, you know, and the shark. It's just it's genius, isn't it? You know. And it's, funnily enough, his friend is the other guard, Jeff Moldovin, who's not with us anymore. But he was really, really a bit because he knew what he was going to do. And he knew that obviously there's a little step behind um, uh, Timothy where he can get him up over his shoulder and drop him into the shelf. But he'd only really seen it with the padding in there originally when they were doing some testing. And mm. when he peered into this thing, I thought, Jesus, what is that? Because they've got this thing, this movement thing going on. It looked really unsettling that he has to has to land in all of this. Whoa. Picked up the hammer for him, bang, hit him in the face with it. It was rather <laughs> unimpressive thing, but uh, yeah. And of course, when the drawer closes, and then, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and then apparently all you can hear is he's banging on the side but Steve Clamp famously thinks that you know it does look too much like pasta I'm afraid yeah you know, I'm a death by bullet but death by carbonara I mean that's what it looks <laughs> yeah. like that's, that's the way I'd like to go instead if anybody's uh, planning it uh, I'm going to go up to my neck in spaghetti carbonara in, in, a, in a fairly expensive Italian restaurant <laughs> Sorry, just reminded not me. Not in a drawer of uh, carbonara, if that's yeah. Right. When you start going about death by carbonara, you just reminded me of the scene in Seven about the guy who dies by gluttony. There, John. Gluttony. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What okay. did you guys think of Tim as a sort of leading man on screen? Because I don't think I've seen him at the cinema in a film at the cinema before. I think for me, he's he's uh, you've. I can't help but contrast it with the fact that I've seen Sean Connery as a leading man on the screen for the last few films where they're all based around him and the character yeah. of that. And Sean Connery is probably the greatest film star in our in that that era, you know. Tim is my favorite Bond, but I think he's my favorite Bond because he's like he's an everyman Bond. This isn't this isn't a kind of super suave sophisticated spy who this is a man just hell-bent on revenge. Mm. And he does it in... What's the best way to describe Well, it's never melodramatic, is it? It's always it's always very... You know, he keeps his rage to a, to a level. And mm. I think he's perfect for that film. I think it suits him better. And I think, actually, when he's dressed up in his... In his what's his called? 
in his tuxedo and stuff and he's playing the suave bond it probably doesn't pull off as much as say the sean connery does because we want him scruffy in this film because it's an action yeah. it's a big action mm. film and that's the way that he plays it so i love it for this film i i always thought that um, what was always fascinating with when you look at roger and you look at sean is that many of their other movies they're always portraying the hero the leading man the hero the suave sophisticated one with tim that's never really the case you know the next big movie he did after this was rocketeer he was the villain yeah, you know, uh, in a big, yeah. a big budget Hollywood picture, he was the villain. He was funny. Um, you know, there's <laughs> been a number. Exactly, yeah. There's been a number of movies along the way where he's played the sort of offbeat character. Later on in his career, he's kind of gone full circle. And then, you know, Hot Fuzz, for instance, a great example. Villain yeah, yeah, yeah. again. Episodes of Doctor Who and all this sort of thing. He's playing a particular character with power. And yet those yeah. early movies leading up to Bond, he was more a kind of leading man type of role. So and Brenda Starr was, of course, the, the one prior to, to Living Day, <laughs> where he was the masked hero, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it was... It was um, yeah, it's... Uh, well, it's I wouldn't put it on the bucket list of things to do. It's, it's, it's worth watching every once in a while. To be fair, Brooke Shields in it, so, you know, big big tick there. That's yeah, yeah. But he kind of goes in... With with Roger, you know, it doesn't matter what it was, right? He's Bond. Therefore, he's going to be the lead in this movie. He's going to be the suave guy in this. He's going to be the action hero in this. Sean's the same. Sean only really started playing really anti heroes just after Bond. Yep. The offense is a terrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Hill. He's still the hero in that, but he's an angry hero in that. You know, and uh, and, and later on down the line, but but certainly Tim never really, and again. There's a thing, if you've never seen it, I, I urge you to do so. Uh, it's a Linda LaPlante miniseries called Framed, if you get a chance. Oh, yeah. It is available on, on DVD, I believe. It's a David wonderful, wonderful uh, um, yeah. uh, terrific uh, miniseries. David Morrissey is in it. He's he's the leading man in it. And Tim is the, the guy who everybody's trying to get hold of. He's the villain. Uh, and he right. plays it absolutely beautifully. Now, that's in the right smack bang in the middle of Bond. I would imagine that's just at the end. That's probably just after Rocketeer and maybe before they were starting to look at locations for the 93 Bond or the idea of that. That was the idea or that, that period. Is still Bond then? No, you are still yeah. Bond. And yeah, still Bond. You know, over. Uh, uh, it, when was King's Hall? Because that was the other one, which was... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was later, maybe. Later on. But again, yeah. he was interviewed by Philip Schofield in the garden of this hotel... And Schofield says to him, you know, this is, I've just looked through your itinerary here of all the people you've got to speak to all over the world. This is ridiculous. Uh, he said, I think I'm the only person who lives in your street who's interviewing you today. He said, what? So I live in your street. And they lived in the same road in, oh, right. I think, at the time. And he said, I was going to ask you about, do you get your papers on time? And, you know, do you, <laughs> how's, how, how's your milkman? You know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but that period there. So I think I was 93 or 94. And he was still Bond then. And, and got this thing, and it's it's great. So you look at, he's a very, very versatile character, uh, given the right material, you know, and uh, and I think certainly out of the two Bonds, even though a lot of people will go and say they love Living Daylights because it's it's a John Barry thing, and it's got all of these other bits of elements yeah. about it. Licence to Kill is, is definitely the Tim Bond, I think, that's that, that would, people would, would tick the box against. He's like a reluctant hero, though, isn't he? Yeah. Even in the two Bonds, he's not someone who is absolutely... Like, Roger is absolutely loving it, isn't he? He he adores every sort of second. He's sort of suave, going around, 
He's not sort of like, oh, great, do I have to do this? It's it's different from someone who hates, you know, yeah. someone who hates the job, that kind of thing. Mm. It's it's more like I, I'm doing I'm doing this for my country. There are annoying things along the way. A bit like in well, in License to Kill, I, I always pick this up. I picked it up especially at the cinema. That the amount of times you said, "Now go," you know, you need to go home now. Yeah, Here. like please, you've done enough now. Just leave me on with it. This is like my thing. You're a hell of a field operative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way I see Tim is, I, I see him as like the bond of conviction. So he's yeah. like, he's always the one who, he doesn't hate the job. He, he, he puts his country first, but it's always about what's right and what's wrong. Mm. So the two, the two Living Daylight, the two films he's in, the first one, even though he doesn't go rogue in Living Daylight, he deliberately disobeys the orders of yeah. M to, you know, because M goes and tells him to go and kill the sniper. Mm. But ultimately, he's right in doing what he did. His convictions are right. It's not that he's having a sulken quitting. And the second one is because he feels that they're not doing enough, and he feels yeah. it's the right thing to do that. So there's there's logic behind the decisions he makes, and that's why I appreciate him. Yeah, yeah, he definitely it definitely works. The film, the film as a whole really works on a number of different levels as well. And I, I think yeah. that um, a lot of people have criticized Michael Kamen's score. And I think it really works very, very well. Brilliant. I mean, he was as thrilled as anybody was to get a Bond movie, you know? Yeah. yeah. He, even if he said, I think he said himself in an interview, you know, even if they'd phoned everybody else and everybody else said, no, they rang me and said, can you do a Bond? He go, yes. Absolutely. And then raced into his family going, I'm doing a Bond movie. And it was the most excited he was. And, and, and provides a whole bunch of terrific bits and pieces. All right, a lot of it now, if you listen to it now, is relatively standard in comparison to what you would maybe get later on with David Arnold, but some lovely bits and pieces that are. Taking the gun barrel, for instance, and doing that thing with it that he does and changing it dramatically still works. It's my second favourite non-Barry score. Mm. After The only one I'd prefer would be George Martin. I hope you'll get to gold now, though. That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll talk to Chris Wait, Goldie, he'll... Yeah. yeah. Chris won't reveal his favourite non Barry score. It, it must be Arnold Tomorrow Never Dies, sure. I mean but but I <laughs> I think the Cayman score is superb. Yeah. I love the Spanish guitar bits in it. Oh, and I yeah. think but I think that I think like pieces like Pam, they Pam, they, yeah. they stand completely on their own. You know, that's not taking any of the theme tune. That's not taking uh, a Bond motif. That's making, that's doing what Barry did, making it a little yeah. melody and making it its own piece. And it worked superbly well. What, what I also thought was very interesting about the score was that when it was released, it was the, was it the first time that MCA had been used? I'm not sure. But it was the first time it was yeah. a various artist soundtrack. So we'd gotten to the stage where we knew that Gladys Knight was going to be the single. Mm -hmm. I used to buy everything on cassette single. I was absolutely obsessed with cassettes back then. And the B-side to the cassette single was Pam. Out of all oh. of the tracks that you yeah. think, right, let's put a B-side out. Let's they, oh, Well, let's promote one of the other songs on the album. Let's put Dirty Love on. Let's do <laughs> Jump Up, you know, whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> Wedding Party. Wedding whatever Party. Whatever it is, you know. <laughs> let's do all of that. No, they put Pam on it. They go, oh, that's interesting, from a sort of juxtaposition. And as you yeah. say yourself, that um, – also, I can't believe I just did that. For those people that are listening to this, that makes no <laughs> sense. Uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I've, 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 my inner monologue said, don't do that. <laughs> oh, yes. So the, um, the, the, the whole idea that they would put this orchestration, this, this orchestrated piece out as a B-side, and that Spanish guitar thing 
was very, very synonymous with the Lethal Weapon scores. Yeah. Mm. Which, you know, there'd been one movie, up to, yes, one movie up to that point, the Lethal Weapon thing. And they kind of used that to a point, Clapton and, and David Sanborn and, and, and Michael Kamen. And so that, that influence in there worked beautifully with the location, the whole feel of the film, the scene itself. And uh, it's very prevalent in a number of those uh, of those moments. I think it's very, very good. But uh, I've, I've always enjoyed the scene. At the end when, of course, you know, why don't you wait until the last? You know, just before that, when she's crying and she's on her own, the lovely use of the guitar then. Mm. Very, it's sort of quite Bond, but it's a bit more, isn't it? It does, it does have that Latin feel still. And the, the film is so hot and sweaty, isn't mm. it? You do feel like you're on location a lot more than some of the other ones. You, you do. I mean, I, I've heard it described as, as a, you know, the, the Bond TV movie. And yeah, that's I find that very really. odd because it, yeah. I think it works. Uh, certainly seeing it on the big screen, it works as, a, as an overall experience. It's, yeah. it's big. You do feel, I was, you know, we were sat there in a nice cool cinema, but... You feel the heat from most, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you also feel for Bond at the end of it because, again, as I, as I may have mentioned on the day, but the, the people go, oh, well, you know, Bond's got to make that. He's got to be, nowadays, he's got to be working harder to beat Bourne and all of those type of movies. Well, he was doing it years ago. Yeah, look at this movie here. He's absolutely destroyed at the end of that picture. He's completely covered in dirt and cut and bruises and his suit's ripped yeah. apart and, and he looks in a proper state. And yet... That's the guy, you know. That's that's the same guy that was with Kara at the end of the previous movie. Yeah, this is the same guy, you know. Uh, people often forget that, maybe, or don't put it into the same sort of perspective. But it's, I think, it happened. It was well long before its time. But people have often said that Daniel Craig's Bond is 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 very much the way that Timothy Dalton's Bond in License to Kill was, and I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, w when we saw it on video for the first time, that was the, that was the main thing I drew from this: the amount of blood. Oh yeah, hang on, Bond, Bond. Yeah. Because I remember, I think James' brother was like, oh, it's so realistic at the end, you know, when the tankers fall, you would have died. You know, when they sort of emerge from it. But, okay, fair enough, maybe they wouldn't have survived that. But to emerge from it, absolutely blooded, bruised cuts everywhere. I just thought, hang on. You're in them. Yeah. This is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're getting it, mad. It raises the stakes. It and, of course, it, it works for the plot device brilliantly that mm. the fuel had to be on them to cut out. That ending, I mean, there was it was. I get shivers every time I even think about that scene, but uh, I couldn't believe it. the audience seemed to be in t utter silence when that was going on. Well, but. yeah, and again, the, the the that that whole concept of of um, you know Timothy is lighting Paul up. He mm. is on yeah. the rock and he is doing it himself. He's covered in protective gel, so that should there be a, a transfer of heat from Paul to him, you know, there is adequate time for him to be put out. But the, 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 he said himself, um, you know, light me and then go. And you'll be taken in that direction there. You leave as quickly as you can. And that's exactly what he did do. But for the actor to be, to be there, and you've seen the long shot photo, which you don't see in the film. You know, you see the close-up of the lighter, and then you see the ignition, and then Bond is away. But there is a, there's a, sh a stock photo where the two of them are in frame together and, and Timothy's lighting Paul, you know, it's incredible. And he's up like an inferno. There's a remarkable, absolutely remarkable moment to, to take the actor to that level. Maybe one of the first times where you see, right, you're going to be right up close in this. You're going to be lighting him, which is a huge responsibility, you know, particularly when Paul's very clearly having issues with the, with the breathing apparatus and yeah. God knows what else that uh, to then 
and the camera's having an issue, and then to get into a situation where you've got the leading man, right, you're going to ignite the stuntman. God. But he does it very well, and uh, the thing, it went, it went, uh, it went along, and it, uh, it will go down in history as one of those great moments. And I, I urge everyone, hopefully, the episode where we, John, interviewed Paul uh, on the stage at the Prince Charles afterwards. Hopefully that'll be out soon, mm. and you can get a lot more insight into not just Licence to Kill, but some other films, yeah. uh, particularly the Bond films. But thank you, guys. We will uh, we will meet again. I'm sure we'd, we'd love to see another Bond film together. Yes. And, uh, yeah, we're just loving this run of them Absolutely. on the big screen. It's going well, isn't it? I, I must say, uh, just br- briefly, that um, uh, although a lot of people have, you know, said, well, they're not doing anything for the 60th anniversary. They're not doing anything. Well, they brought the movies out, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, we've, we've, we've never seen them all, you know, uh, the Prince Charles Cinema, to be fair, and ha- hats off to them, have been doing this for some time. But they yeah, are in cinema in London, right. you know? Uh, yeah. So to do it nationwide, and I do feel very sorry for those people in Europe or, or in the, the rest of the world yeah. who constantly keep going on Twitter going, well, they're not doing it here. They're not doing it in my country. <laughs> so I, I, I think worldwide would have been sensational, uh, but they are doing it. And the people in the UK you know, have to be very thankful for the fact that you are getting an opportunity to see movies that you've never been able to see. Yeah. On the big screen, in your local multiplex, instead of having to make a trek to go down and see you know, uh, uh, see one of these movies at a, at a very particular, very specific cinema in London. So uh, they are doing that, and hats off to them for that. Yeah, very cheap as well. The tickets that I've, I've had, oh yeah, four nine and some are seven pounds. I tell you what, and the, I think- the meals we're having beforehand are way more. Oh yeah, than <laughs> my year, I'm getting very lucky because I got bought for Christmas 2019 a thirty pound cinema voucher. No, you're still using it. Well, COVID. Like, <laughs> COVID happened straight away. I didn't use it. And then my wife found it halfway through this run, and she went, see if you can still use it. And they said, yeah, because of COVID, we've, we've backdated them. Backdated. Well, I'm watching oh, them all nice. for free now. It's brilliant. Well done. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah, well, well, Barbara, we're, we're doing the best. Even, we, we, were, we were continually having curries beforehand, which is a very, very – can I just advise anybody, if you fancy doing a curry beforehand, don't do that, because what happens is your body goes, I'm nice and relaxed now. And I may <laughs> just drop off at a moment because I've seen this film. No, don't do yeah. that. Have something yeah. light. Have something afterwards. That's the plan. So, uh, don't drink too much for you know. So you have to keep going to the loo as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was, was going to say Barbara, of course, made sure No Time to Die was released on the big screen, didn't she? That was the whole point. Yeah. That they could have done the streaming early. They could have sort of just chickened out and done that. But the whole point of this franchise is it is a cinema yeah. once every two or three years, hopefully. Uh, events and uh, these films we're we'll luckily to see them once a week absolutely yeah. it's incredible crazy hi this is Robert Dobby and you're watching Really 007 Podcast remember you're only president for life Where's my wife? Don't worry. We gave her a nice honeymoon. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business.
Sorry, old buddy, but two mil is a hell of a chunk of dough. Killing me won't stop anything, Sanchez! There are worse things than dying already. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> Not that long ago, we went to London. I mean, we, we booked this to, to go to London because we didn't know that then that mm. all the bonds would be shown on the big screen around the country, around the UK. And I keep I keep saying that and then instantly think, I'm oh, sorry for the guys who don't live in the UK, don't see any of these. <laughs> Thank goodness um, the, the UK has been able to see them. But I think the Prince Charles, they, they do them occasionally. They, they, you know, they do them every few years. So some people who live in London might not think of it as a big thing. But for us, it was massive and we had to but tickets. But even though we could have watched Licence to Kill locally when it was on, um, I'm so glad that we, we saw it in London with Bond fans, meeting you, Steve, for the first time, and uh, John Orty as well, and a whole host of random people on the internet who appear to be real people. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting experience, wasn't it, just sort of meeting these guys and, and gals. It, it was uh, it was great for me. I, honestly, I'm still buzzing, and, and now that we're recording this, some weeks later, I just brought it all back about how yeah. how exciting the day was for me. I was so looking forward to meeting you guys um, and, and and the Johns and, uh, and everyone else because we've we've become pretty good friends really over mm. WhatsApp and and social media since. Well, I, obviously, since I was originally a guest on your pod, well, it must be about eighteen months ago now, or maybe even longer mm. during the pandemic. Yeah. And then of course No Time to Die came out and Chris you <laughs> added me to the to the counseling group on WhatsApp with, <laughs> with all of you. Yeah. Pretty much since then we've we've talked every day, haven't we, in some mm. form or another. So I, I couldn't wait to meet you all. And, and we'll, it was brilliant. We'll have to do it, you know, properly because it, there was so much going on, wasn't there? Um it was quite hard to sort of get mm. get a few minutes together. That was great though, because we did see people who like I say we didn't know existed. Um, I won't. I won't name names, but uh, <laughs> some, of them, some of them do exist. They're not just Twitter handles. <laughs> it's quite but funny. Yeah. You meet a lot of people, and they say, "Oh, I'm so and so, aka yeah. Yeah. whatever," and I'm like, "I'm Steve Clamp, aka <laughs> Steve Clamp." <laughs> Mother Telly, you know, I can't. I can't have a fake name. You know. <laughs> yeah, it, it was so good. And uh, Chris, what did you think when you were? Uh, you first stepped up to De Hems and, and saw all these Bond fans. <laughs> it was great. It was like Steve said, it was it was a bit kind of strange because it was there was a few people sort of recognised through, you know, Twitter. Um, but then you're not too sure if they're using real names, if the you know, they've got like Bond esque kind of, you know, handles, so you kind of oh that's what was it, double O something below seven this you know so it's like oh yeah. right okay so it was a little it was a little odd but it was great to finally you know meet so many you know people that i've got to know you know via kind of social media and, and also people who've you know given up their their time to contribute to the, the podcast which i think is fantastic yeah. even back to when we did the you know the anniversary one people gave up their evenings and depending mm-hmm. on the you know the time zone and stuff so it was it was amazing to to, to meet people 
who are all you know just Bond fans, you know, and so it was it was it was it was a strange, but very exciting and exhilarating experience. Mm. It's, it's been a bit different watching the Bonds, you know, from Dot to No onwards at the cinema, mm-hmm. and most of the people who were there, perhaps, you know, they're not, they're not the typical Bond fan audience where they'll sort of cheer and holler at different bits of it. Some of them are Bond fans, and they have reacted to that, but seeing Licence to Kill with Bond fans who love that film, it just it's just an amazing experience, because until we started this podcast, we're saying this before, we didn't know people like Licence to Kill, we genuinely didn't know they did, and to meet, you know, people like Steve and John and Carey and good I mean, how many of them who love Licence to Kill all to sat sat together watching it. It's just a real treat. Yeah, it was. And you you certainly got uh you got that through the reaction, didn't mm. you? And even I found myself I, as you know how much I did love that film, but laughing out loud mm. a lot more than I would if I watched yeah. it at home because you, you're part of the audience experience and if someone else is laughing at a gag, you it, it kind of brings it out of you and, and it's actually only, you know, I've watched that film, gosh, I don't know, 30, 40 times. <laughs> who, who knows? Up around that figure in my life. And I saw it in the cinema in 89 because, well, I wasn't quite old enough, but I still mm. watched it. But even now, I got stuff out of that experience from watching the film I've not had before. I did not realise how funny it is. I've always defended it and said it is funny because people talk about the Dalton films being dark. And I've always said Licence to Kill is actually a funny film. But it wasn't until we were in that showing and you got the real laughter, which was nearly every scene, there's something funny happens in it. We mm. really realised how cleverly they work the humour into it because it, they've, they're obviously not doing it in the in, in the Roger Moore style where it's one-liners so much. Well, you get a little bit of that from Robert Davy. It's done more in the situation, which I think makes it makes the gags hit home even better because they, they're kind of believable within the scenes they're in. Yeah, I, I, I was really struck by the um, the amount of humour. Like like you say, Steve, exactly the same. I've seen it so many times and never never quite realised just how much humour there is. And and obviously, it really did help having people who are who the audience being Bond fans and being being all there, you know, to to engage in this same shared emotional experience if that makes sense and you know it's quite unusual that that happens i was i was thinking this you know we were meeting people who were sort of strangers people you've chatted to but you know that you've immediately got something in common which which happens so in in my other you know in in various other parts of my life um we go to church so that's a similar thing where you're you're, all, you're part of a collective and then also as a committed berry fan you know you might meet a stranger who's a Berry fan, but you've immediately got that in common. And this this felt exactly the same. And then, yeah, when we were in it, you, you just felt the audience. There was that buzz that people were well up for it, and th- which was just wonderful. And I imagine that's the same for a lot of Bond films. Um, if if we put any Bond film on, but I, I felt it really s- special because this was License to Kill, which I'd always thought was you know we we sort of mentioned it before that this wasn't one that was particularly popular. And that perhaps even Bond fans weren't as keen on, and it said, "Well, it's not very Bond that that film, you know." Oh, yeah, it's all right, or, but it's not. It's not very Bond. But I don't know. It was just. It just felt so good to have that Bond audience all enjoying it together in such a such a brilliant way. It's quite nice as well. I mean, I, I always think you know people must think we're mad that we all watched these films over and over and over again uh, because a lot of people don't do that. They just move on to the next film and. You know, they're looking excited for the next film that comes out, whatever it might be. But there's actually something nice about going, knowing you're not going to be disappointed by the film. 
Yeah. Because you, you, especially with Bond, we go into the cinema with such, for us, such expectation, the same as a, yeah. as a Star Wars fan would when they go and see the next Star Wars film. You go in with this huge expectation. You don't want to be let down. You don't want to be disappointed. So then when you have, you know, something like No, no Time to Die, where a lot of us had problems with it, it's it's all the worse because we love mm. the films so much and it matters so much. If you're just a casual viewer, I'm sure it doesn't matter at all. But so it was nice to go and see a film that you already know you're going mm. to love and still be surprised yeah. by it along yeah. the way. Um, Is that the first time you've been to the cinema since No Time to Die, Steve? Oh, no, I have I have <laughs> been to the cinema, I think, since. Oh, do you know, I don't know if I... I'm trying to think now. If I did, it was probably with my kids to see some Marvel-based something. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I actually don't know if I've been to the cinema. Blimey. Gosh. Yeah. Well, saying, Matt, no, I, I was just going to say, if I ever watch something, you know, if, if there's a film you love and then you re-watch it, particularly at the cinema, often it's with someone who has either not seen it or isn't quite as familiar with. So you might be, you, you're, you're not on edge, but you're wanting them to like it as much as you. Whereas again, I don't know. I just felt that everyone, you know, everyone knows the film so well and loves it so you could just relax and, and enjoy it all crazy experience i had i mean i was sat next to simon lewis who you know isn't mm. a massive bond fan so i sort of had yeah. that experience yeah. he did enjoy it but then behind me i've got paul weston <laughs> yeah. and i've got that like i was thinking well i keep looking back to him you know is that you know that bit that's you isn't it yeah and, oh it's such a weird experience but i was glued the whole time I want to take you back. So, Chris, did you you didn't see it at the cinema? I didn't know. Um, you know, when it came out in 89. When did you first see it? On Just on video, on videotape, just as a sort of, as they were being released. You know, there was a few films that hadn't been on show, shown on TV or had been on that I just hadn't sort of caught. So when it, when me and my brother were buying the, them on VHS, it was then that it was kind of <clears throat> discovering them without ad breaks without them being caught, you know, without, you know, yeah. pan and scan and the rest of it. So it was quite, you know, for me, and I, I, I mentioned before that Last of Kill was always a bit, bit of an sort of outlier compared to like, you know, a bit like On Her Majesty's Secret Service. You know, it feels very different. It doesn't feel like a traditional Bond film or Bond adventure. But, you know, I've really grown to sort of uh, appreciate it, not least because of the badgering from you lot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, just because, and, and just kind of you know because I, I absolutely love Don, love John Glenn, and I think that that I'd always kind of I don't know it just didn't didn't really stick with me. It didn't kind of you know it wasn't some, one of the ones that I loved. I always loved you know the two you know Living Daylights was was my Dalton kind of film. So you know over the years, kind of you know rewatching it, I've really kind of enjoyed. You know, just seeing it afresh and just kind of like, I suppose, like giving it, giving it a bit of time and watching it, knowing more about your know, John Glenn style and you know, and what the fact you know, obviously, it's been written specifically for Dalton, that kind of thing. So I, it really has gone up in my estimate. That's not that yeah. It's easy for you to say. It's been a long day. You know, it's really, it's really gone it up in my, uh, in my opinion, just simply because it's, it's just a really great film. Dalton is just fantastic in it. The cast is brilliant. Again, every time I go back and watch it, I find something new, which is always the case with John Glenn's film. I, I, I don't know because it's sort of, oh well, you know, he directed so many Bond films. You know, he's just a bit of a kind of, you know, a, a safe pair of hands or a bit of a hack kind of thing. But I just don't feel that <laughs> at all because you go back and watch them, you think he had so much to them. 
but he's not he doesn't show off he, he doesn't you know he's never kind of you know kind of he uh, he's a very traditional director where he directs but it's it's the film mm. that should be showing off not the way he directs or the way he shoots something or the way it's edited it's you know it's all about this you know you know an ensemble piece so yeah i think license to kill is definitely keeps going up you know on in my list of, of, of the bond films and seeing it on the big screen was just was just amazing you know like I say with 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 the audience just every joke landed you know every i suppose maybe one or two kind of outdated comments <laughs> or scenes there was a few kind of titters here and there but it felt like a real kind of you know uh, what cinema should be which is you're sharing an experience with people mm. and hearing them react to it you know in real time and it was it, it felt really special the fact that you know to sit there and to have that slide up that had the really 007 logo on and to have you know John Orty there mm. and Steve you know and uh, you know people who kind of really kind of consider his film uh, as, as friends and kind of you know like I say just it's just more than just you know being on Twitter and it, you know expressing your love for a certain thing it became really you know cemented the idea of you know having a bond community in the best sense of that word you also watched it a few months ago we did a thread on twitter where you were trying to sort of notice the little i don't know little little glimmers of john glenn and little choices and shots yeah and i don't did that has that sort of made you appreciate the film a bit more as well Oh, definitely. I think, like, like whenever we, you know, whenever we do any of the reviews, sitting down and really kind of concentrating on it, you know, and, and, and rather than, because these are films we're so familiar with, you can walk out the room and you can, you can almost know at what point that dialogue is being spoken and what that sound effect is happening. It's like listening to a yeah. record, you know, you just, you can walk, sing the lyrics, walk out, come back in and you're singing the correct lyrics at the same time. So sitting down and watching them for the reviews and stuff and, and just kind of, you know, what, like I say, License to Kill was one that wasn't, you know, one that I loved as much as, you know, you guys did. So I thought I really, you know, I'll try and give it my all and just, you know, sort of see, maybe, you know, not necessarily I've missed anything, but just really analyse it and kind of think, well, actually, you know, re- try to appreciate it. So there was a few things that I'd noticed, like, that, that, that it felt, you know, certain shots, certain, you know, there were certain tropes that felt very kind of like traditional film noir, you know, it had, and also it was like, yeah, it was like, I suppose the, it was like a mix between film noir and a, and, and a western. Mm. You know, there was like yeah. barroom brawl, you know, in, in the middle of it. There's these, you know, essentially, Darby is, is an outlaw, mm. you know, he is, yeah. you know, and you've got the, 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 you know, the tanker chase at the end, which is like people on top of a train or on top of carriages and things, the runaway carriage. You know, it just felt like that, again, that, that Glenn is kind of. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, you know, the producers and the writers kind of thinking, you know, what can we actually do here? And I've never really, I've never kind of seen it that way, that this is, you know, shot almost as, you know, with the with the blinds and the fans, the ceiling fans, and just some of the, the, the way that he sort of stages some of the shots. And, you know, I've taken a few stills of it and put it in black and white, but it looks amazing. Mm. You know, it looks like you could easily transfer it to black and white. It would be a modern kind of noir, mm. film noir. It's, it's such a, and, and that's what really made it kind of leave a few, spe- you know, kind of really appreciate it. Because I thought I just never had seen it like that. It was just another Dalton film or another John Glenn film. There was so much more to it. One for Tom Mason to re-edit as a black and white. <laughs> yes. But. I mean, Steve, did you you saw it at the cinema, didn't you, when it first came out? Yeah, I was only thirteen what, then. What was it like, sort of 
was it in the build up was it like now nah, this is a really violent one you know what this is totally different it's a 15 well do you know the sad thing really I wish there was all that talk about it but um, we didn't go to the cinema much as a family I think my memories my childhood memory isn't great my brother's so much more vivid than mine I think the first Bond film we saw at the cinema was A View to a Kill and the reason I think that is because he and I had loads of merchandise from it I had like some yeah, yeah. Smith's Chris were doing yeah. it had a great advertising campaign yeah. and I remember that my dad We'd uh, we'd had um we'd had a larder. Remember larder cars? We'd had this larder, and we were gonna. My, my dad had got a pay rise or something. We were gonna move up in the world and get a, a, a normal car. And <laughs> we went. We looked look Renaults because, and they were. We got to the Renault dealer. I was nine eighty five, and it was full of boo to a kill stuff because he obviously Bond drives a Renault in it. So we went to the. Um, I remember being at the Renault dealer, and it was a lot of buzz about it. So I'm sure. I just can't remember it clearly, but I'm sure my mum must have then taken us to the cinema to see it being we had all these posters on the wall and we'd done the whole thing. We needed we didn't buy the Renault in the end, but we'd been to see this Renault, the fact it was in a bomb film. So we would and I think we then saw Daylights. The first one I vividly remember going to see is License to Kill. But bearing in mind that summer mm-hmm. Batman was out and Indiana, Indiana Jones The Last Crusade was out. And that's what I remember my friends at school talking about. And I remember going in the next day, also bearing in mind I was 13, so I was underage. It was my mum and my nan that took me, so they can take the flack for that. But none of my friends had seen it. Now, it might have been the age rating, partly, but I think it was also that there was so much hype for these mm. other films around at the time. It's weird what sticks in your mind. I remember we got to the cinema, and as I say, it was very rare we went to the cinema. And cinemas were dying a little bit around then. We didn't have the multiplexes that we that came along about five or ten 10 years, well, maybe oh, a bit less. It was just before the resurgence of cinema, put it that way. It probably was that summer that started to kick it all off again with Batman and everything. But we went to the cinema and it was a, a bit of a mess. And I remember there was like an ice cream on the floor just melting away. And I remember my mum saying to my nan, saying, oh, the state of cinemas these days. It's like, why is that stuck <laughs> in my head for three years? But then, and I watched the film and I all my, my clearest memory of it is I walked out of the cinema and thought I was James Bond and, and that was the point. I went from being someone who had always enjoyed watching them on, on ITV, especially the Roger Moore ones, but that was the moment where I was in love with Bond. I walked out, I was hiding behind lampposts as I was kind of walking back to the car, oh. peeking around, all that kind of thing. And I really thought I was James Bond and, and, and that was the moment it sealed it for me. And so to see on the big screen again, uh, it was terrific. And and I think what I took away from it, obviously I've talked about the humour. It's, it's funnier than I ever realised before watching it this time. But there were certain scenes that really, really stood out for me as being better than even I'd appreciated. There's one that I, I went down an absolute storm in the cinema. And it might be one that you were slightly alluding to, Chris, with the, the way things have changed with time. But I think it's played really well, is when Pam is objecting to being Bond's secretary. Mm. Yes. And actually... There's actually nothing sexist about that scene because he follows it up with about where we are. Yeah. You couldn't get away. I can't be your secretary where we are. But it's a really funny scene. And everyone like, how do I? Initially, you laughing. Then the follow up line actually, well, that's fine because it's in a part of the world which is clearly sexist then. And he's and he's making that clear. He's not saying I can't be the secretary because I'm a man. He's saying I can't be a secretary because of where we are. And then that really got a big laugh, mm. the way that scene's handled. I've always loved the scene with the whole, this is yeah. my uncle, this is my cousin. I think that's terrific. The bedroom oh, yeah. scene gets a big laugh. And the scenes with the bank manager, now the one where he yeah. invites him in to see, uh, because he sees the money, puts the case and gets a big laugh. But what also got a really big laugh <laughs> is when he had the withdrawal of the money. I mean, I, yeah. 
which again, I hadn't yeah. realized quite how well that's done, but that, that got a huge laugh. So those things really stood out to me as, as being even better than I thought. And the pacing of the film, it just goes from scene to scene, scene. everything leads to another scene. You can follow the story mm-hmm. so easily, which with some Bond films, if you're not paying enough attention, you can suddenly think, oh, hang yeah. on, why is he here now? I know it was referred to in that last scene, but I can't remember what the link is. But in License to Kill, you can follow mm-hmm. everything. It clearly maps its way through a film, which I think help, helps with the pacing. There was one bit I did that really struck me, which has never struck me before, and I wonder if there's a deleted scene. But you know where... Um, Bond is in bed with Lupe and it then cuts to the next scene where Lupe walks in and and Q and Pam are there and she does the whole I love James so much which leads that great reaction from Pam uh, mocking her but it's a weird thing to go from the two of them in bed to Mm -hmm. the next scene Lupe walks in the door saying I'm really worried about James and I wonder if there's a cut scene there where she says goodbye Mm. to James yeah yeah it felt just that did slightly not jar for me, but I just never noticed that that's a bit weird to go from that to literally cut to Lupe walking in another room. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And saying, so I do wonder if there's a deleted scene there. And that's never struck me before. I think some people have interpreted that as, you know, some people say, oh, it's terrible acting from her, and it's a bit ridiculous that she'd be like that. But is she not just playing everybody again? I think she's playing people. I think she's also very vulnerable because she's obviously... um, wants to get out of there. We've seen how she's being treated by Sanchez. So, and and, and then this hero's come along and looks like he might save her. And I think she's just a young, vulnerable person. And yeah, I think she's playing Pam a bit. And and I... I just love it because I love I love Pam's response. <laughs> she walks out the room. <laughs> so I just adore that scene. I think Lupe's a great character, mm. and I and I think uh, she's played really well. But yeah, there was oh, there was just so much. It was scene to scene. Like, oh, I love this, and then another scene would happen. I'm like, oh, just that's brilliant the way they've done that. And as you talked about, Chris, the way it's shot, some of the scenes where where Sanchez finds Lupe in bed with that other guy, the, the way that's filmed. I tell you oh. another scene which on watching it on TV hasn't uh, struck me as being as impressive as it is, is the reveal of M. Because yes. on TV, you because you've seen it a thousand times, you kind of yeah. just know that's M. But actually, when you see it in the cinema, you can see John Glenn's gone there to make it like, well, who the hell is yeah. Bond being you know, yeah. taken to here? And there's a reveal yeah. as the camera moves through yeah. the, the kind of vines and greenery, whatever it is. You think and then it's, it's, a a him. it's just a lovely touch. It is playing with the audience, that definitely, because you know he's in trouble. And you, you do, I think Carey said about it perhaps in his book that showing the cats makes you think it's a, it's a sort of nod to Blofeld, isn't it? I mean, it obviously isn't going to be him, but 
you don't see his face yeah. for ages and he's turned around really it's quite an unusual choice uh-huh. and, and then for M to be as really bolshy with him as he's ever been it's just a, it's, I know we keep going on about that scene but it's genuinely one of the best acted scenes in the whole franchise for me and well, I, I think it's really well handled because he is, um, is obviously really cross, but you can see the position Emma's mm. in. Yeah. Um, and he never sort of behaves in a way that you don't believe mm. he would have behaved with Bond or certainly with Dalton's Bond from Dallas. You, you, you believe the way he plays that scene. And I think that's one of the problems with the Daniel Craig films. I've not always believed the way they've written M to behave with Bond, well, Judy Dench's M in particular. I actually don't like the way they wrote it in Die Another Day, where Judy Dench has been so clearly close to Pierce Brosnan's Bond and then immediately just believes he's selling secrets mm. without any yeah. any real proof of that, except the information's being... Yeah. And, and disowns herself from it, and obviously it's written by the same terrific writers <laughs> who wrote the Craig films. So... <laughs> Yeah, but, but with this scene, in this, it works perfectly for me. You can yeah. see the position that M's in. He's he, he doesn't want Bond to do this because he you can see there's a, there's an affection and a respect between them. But what's he what's he got choices he got? He's got no choice. And I like the way that that Bond doesn't sort of assault M. He just disarms <laughs> the security guys and, and yeah. leaps away. <laughs> Yeah, I know, yeah. He kicked him, didn't he? I, I, I was, in my mind, I think there was a time where I thought, oh, that's a bit harsh because he was, you know, an old fella. <laughs> um, and he's so good that scene, it really is. And it's not it's not that long either. And, you know, I'm sure we could all recite the dialogue now and it's it's really good dialogue. But I don't I don't ever feel it's it's not trying to be too too clever. I know we've said about the cleverness of the, the way it's shot and everything, but then with the dialogue, you know where each person is coming from. And and you know their motivations, as you say, Steve. So it's just it was it's fantastic, and the audience, you know, seem seem to be quite gripped, you know, by it, which is wonderful. And and Dalton's acting, which we've obviously talked yeah. about at length, but I, I I just think he's one of the greatest actors who's ever walked the earth. What he can do yeah. just with a look, yeah. just with his eyes, a glance, he can tell us what what you know. Other actors would have to be given a line of dialogue which he yeah. doesn't need because he can just tell you a story with his eyes. And he does that so well in the daylights as well. But in here, I just think it's, well, it's written for mm-hmm. him, isn't it? And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And it does leave you walking out of the cinema thinking, oh, I wish yeah. there was another Dalton film. Oh no. Oh. Yeah. Of course the danger is what, what if it mm. wasn't very good? And then you wouldn't have this perfect two films, which are, I mean, you, they are pretty yeah. much perfect yeah. bomb films, yeah. both of his. So at least he had, you know, at least he had absolute quality. Oh, yeah. It's two from two, isn't it? Yeah. I know John used to say, technically, you know, Lazenby is one from <laughs> one, isn't he? Mm. So, well, two from two, so he, he wins, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 100% record. <laughs> but, yeah, I, that you're right, Steve. In that scene particularly, the way he sort of bites his lip and looks around, mm. there's no dialogue there. You can see how flustered and angry he's getting. Yeah. And obviously the scene where... He sort of refuses the, you know, the from um, Della, you know, and he, he catches the thing. And, yeah. Yeah. No. Another so, lovely bit of acting, when he's seen Pam, uh, when he's about to blow the windows out of the hotel, and he, he sees Pam there yeah. and he thinks she's double-crossed him. And then when he goes and, and, and obviously pins her down the hotel bed, he's really angry. And she's telling him, no, you're in the wrong. Yeah. And his reaction to that, as, as you can just see, is almost like his heart sinking as mm. he realises 
he's got it wrong and he's put people's lives in danger because he's misunderstood the situation. He, he just, he goes from yeah. being so angry to being <clears throat> almost a shell of a man in a few seconds where he realises, I've got this wrong. Yeah. I'm not always getting this right. I think there's a real kind of, there's, there's a, a deep understanding of what makes Bond flawed. I think that's mm-hmm. the, that he, he, he's, he's so, you know, you know, after this one thing, that's he's just so kind of yeah. like, you know, he just wants to get Sanchez. That he forgets actually his involvement is messing things up for other people, and there's that, like you say, in that scene when he yeah. sits on the bed, and he kind of just like there's a moment of realization that actually there are other people involved in this, and it is a brilliant scene. It's again brilliant directed, really simply shot, you know, and the acting is it just tells you everything yeah. you want, and it, but it has impact, you know, it has impact on the on the characters as well as the story, and he does make big mistakes. I mean. You can't get away from the fact that all those people from the Hong Kong narcotics mm. team are all killed because of him. Yeah. You know, it, it's really yeah. his fault, isn't and, it? And they might he, well have taken Sanchez down themselves, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's true. It had to be personal, though, didn't it? Mm. It was all gearing up to the personal mm. vengeance. I just want to say as well, <laughs> I know it's a fairly obvious comment and and obviously, you know, something John Glenn does get credit for, but the action... I, I just couldn't believe it at times how amazing, yeah. you know, the the opening. And we should mention that there was uh, the round of applause at oh, the end of... And also just yeah. a vague shout out for um, something Matt Kanzik pointed out, that the... But yeah, the applause, that was, I mean, you knew that. Everyone's on board at that point. It just that that felt that felt wonderful. But just the action, you know, the water skiing, that that whole set piece is just absolutely magnificent. Perfect action. It's so it's so exciting. It fits in with the plot of the film, and it's really Bond as well. Only Bond would do those things, and it, it's just it's just brilliant. And then uh, the the tanker chase at the end, and some of the explosions and the size oh. of the explosions. I think I said this. I might have said this to you, Chris, afterwards. That no, uh, not no time to die. Spectre had the the world record for the you know the biggest explosion ever. And it just doesn't feel yeah. it doesn't feel the same. And I, I don't know, just the way that I don't, it's the way that it's shot it's, it's, it's how it fits in with the story and the action. But mm-hmm. some of those those explosions for the from the tankers, you you almost feel the heat. You know, it's just. Yes, yeah, you're right. You do feel the heat. The, the one, and I know that probably the main one you're thinking of is where you've just got the tanker, the the engine itself sitting in the front foreground, and then yeah. the explosion behind it is just yeah, the whole it frame is, yeah, is just filled. a fire, yeah. huge fireball. Mm. It's astonishing. Yeah, I, I am, that tanker chase. I think, it's got to be <laughs> top five action sequences of any Bond film, um, possibly yeah. number one. I just think it's. And then you talked about the um, the water skiing. What I love about that is the way it's directed. You always know underwater yeah. which one Bond is. And you often get this criticism yeah. with underwater scenes that because they're in scuba gear and whatever, it's hard to tell which one Bond is and who everyone else is. But in that sequence, there's not one moment where you can't, yeah. you don't know who's who. You know who the bad is. I know Bond is. He's, he's wearing, a, I think he's wearing a different colored scuba suit, which helps. But it's, it's just a simple but really effective direction. You know which one he is. You know what's going on all the time. <clears throat> it's terrific. And I, lo- I love just how everything leads to something else. It's just so well tied together, that mm. film. He, he gets the plane from the water ski thing, and then that gives yeah. him the money yeah. to then yeah. go and open the account at yeah. Sanchez's bank. 
It's not just an action scene for yeah. an action scene. It's an action scene that moves the story forward. Yeah. And there was, it's also it could be wholly appropriate for that bond. Mm. You know, this, again, John Glenn's understanding of what, like, what Roger Moore can do, what's appropriate in terms of action for him yeah. as that bond, and then what's appropriate for yeah. Dolan's. And it's it's spectacular. And he understands that, that the stunts are, you know, just as good, but they feel much more grounded. You feel much more like appropriate, you know. There's, there's, I don't think of all the directors, there's very few have truly kind of understood action and how, like you said, how it sits into mm. the story and how it can actually drive the story, as opposed to here's a set piece, we'll just show it, and then you move on to the next scene, and you just it's just left behind. This is driving the story as well as you know the characters, and it being spectacular and like some of the best stunts again. Top of the game, you know what we're going to do. Something to do with water skis, right? Well, what can we do that's better than with water skis? Someone can do it barefoot, right? Okay, and then how? Are we going to, it's just, it's just amazing that, that they, just how innovative they are or were. And, and there's the bond how, theme for that. Yes, yeah. that's, that's when he's being bond. Only bond yeah. would do that. And I love, I, I, I love the score of that film. Yeah. Uh, I think it gets overlooked a lot because it's not John Barry and it's not a composer who's perhaps as in the public eye as, as, as Hans Zimmer or um, as some of the others. But I think it's a great score and I think it, it does a fine job of paying tribute really to what John Barry's done before mm. uh, whilst giving it a bit of a fresh feel. It, it hasn't, it, most of it's orchestrated so it hasn't dated You've got no. Dirty Love, which is obviously dated, but only in an absolutely <laughs> brilliant way. I mean, I've, I've been listening to Dirty Love so much <laughs> since we saw the cinema. I keep putting it on. But it's, I, I, I really enjoy the score for that film. I'd like to see I, I find it, and I've got, you know, I've got the vinyl of it from back in the day, and I, I quite like listening to it. I think it's mm. got a good feel, the score. And it, every, every, every scene, you've got some really quite distinctive stuff in there with the Spanish guitars and things. It's really... Mm. I think it's underrated, the score. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned before, Tom, that when Bond does, you know, it's, it's accused of not being a very Bond Bond film, as I've mentioned, but when Bond does stuff that only Bond would do, the theme comes in and it, it's used really well. So there is that scene. And then there's also, um, I think at the start, when, you know, the um, with the plane and the, you know, let's go fishing. But then, yeah, pull it. Driving the uh, the tanker through the um, through the flames, yeah. it's just that's when you do. That's when you use the bond that thing when it's something only he would do, and to get out of an impossible situation. What do you think of some of the performances, guys, on the big screen? And we've spoken to Robert Darby since you know we since I last saw the film, anyway. And I, I think we've appreciated because he's told us a bit of the background of the character, creating the character, and everything. And I do I do see it as much more that. You know, it's the the samurai, isn't it? The sort of mm. getting them from within, and it, that really runs through a lot of the film. He's taking them out one by one, and the two of them together, Dalton. That scene when they're having the coffee outside, and yeah. only one man. You know, and you can see that Sanchez is not. And when he's in, you know, he's in his bed. Um, <laughs> you know, he's at the end, sat at the end of his bed. Mm. It could have been done, sort of like, oh, what? Oh, right. Oh, I'll have a look at that then, James. Thanks for letting me know. The way sort of Robert Darby plays it, you sort of see his looks and There's he doesn't want to give too much away to Bond yeah. that he's yeah. panicking. Can you he imagine anybody smiling. else playing Sanchez like Darby, no, Robert no. Darby did? And then I think that says it all, doesn't it? That yeah. he absolutely nails it. The little, the little glances he gives, the smiles, the pauses, mm. the charm he brings. He doesn't. Yeah. He, he's. Uh, I mean, 
he's just perfect. He's never over the top. He's no, just, he isn't. He's just perfect. I think the whole, I, 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 there isn't a member of that cast that I would change. I, I, I think as well that something he does brilliantly is that he's got he's got both the sort of charm and the and the I don't know presence and respect to be the overall leader, and people are scared of him. You know, I don't know, a bit like a Drax or a, a Stromberg. But then he can get stuck in with the action, you know, like at the end. You know, I think he ticks both of those boxes really well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I when think with uh, Milton Crest, sorry, I, that. Oh, oh, kill yeah. me, you know, that when he's absolutely flying like that. It's such a good scene again. Like, you are genuinely terrified of that guy then. Mm. And Crest is scared of him, isn't he? You can tell he is a bit stupid, Crest. He tries a bit too much, doesn't he, to sort of do his own thing. But then you do you do feel slightly sorry for him when you realise that <laughs> Bond's sort of messed him about and put money in there and everything. Go on, Chris. Sorry. No, I, I was just saying. I think when seeing it on the big screen made me. I suppose I was much more aware that that you know it's been discussed be- before that Sanchez is like the flip side to Bond because he is. Yeah. I became much more aware that that he how charming he is. How actually pleasant he can be you know, in terms of he, he does have a sense of humor. He is actually polite. This seems like some of the dialogue I could hear where he says, you know, bring some coffee. He says, pour for four. You know, this is a very wealthy, mm. you know, and, yeah. you know, quite a scary guy, but he still says thank you. He's still, he's still uh, you know, yeah. he's a great host, you know, and it, you would think. He's a drug dealer. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I just think that, that he, you know, obviously him seeing some of himself in Bond. I think that's what made me up seeing it on the big screen. I just thought that Davy absolutely nails it because he, 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 again, like Dalton, there's a lot going on behind the eyes. There's a lot, kind of a lot of thinking and a lot of like, right, okay, like he's listening. He understands, you know, he's like, he doesn't, his temper comes in when it's justified, when he's mm-hmm. being betrayed. And that's what he talks about, you know, that, that trust and loyalty for him is the, is the main thing. And they're the moments when he actually explodes. It's, so it's t- totally, you know, Obviously, won't go to those extremes, but you know it's understandable <laughs> that he would get so angry at people. You know, in in a, doing a job where he has to be surrounded by loyal people because people are constantly trying to you know scream over money or business or that, that side of things. But I just thought that Davy absolutely is is brilliant. I think that Anthony Stark is you know as Truman Lodge is another brilliant yeah. character who, who I forget has not a great deal of uh, screen time but he's mm. so memorable and has every time he's on screen there's just stuff with with him I, I always forget that when he when they walk into the bank and he's he's talking to the you know the investors and he's and when that and whenever Sanchez yeah. you follow him and not Truman Lodge, yeah, you know, yeah. there's like they know who's oh. really you know in charge. Just a bit, and it kind of undermines Truman Lodge, and he, then you feel sorry for him almost, you know, because he's just like this over enthusiastic accountant essentially. But I just thought the but he's so stupid when he, you know, he gets angry with him, which gets him killed. Hmm. What you know, come on, mate. And, <laughs> you know what this guy's like. But he's <laughs> been constantly getting more and more annoyed. And just basically, yeah. he can't believe Sanchez is almost disregard really? the financials. <laughs> yeah, you do yeah. get why he gets annoyed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was a great day, wasn't it? It was a great day. I think, yeah, meeting you know, like Paul Weston, who is just, his career oh. is just absolutely amazing. And he looks, still looks hard as nails. 
Uh, yeah, he's still, you know, he's got such a familiar face because of the because of his cameo <laughs> in Living Daylights. It's just like, and the stories just it was amazing to hear him talk about, you know, the the burn, the big burn at the end, and, and you know how that didn't quite go to plan, but obviously worked out all well in the end. But yeah, to see him, you know, again prepared to give up, you know, free time to come and chat to Bond fans about this film that's, you know. Is like that's what I love about I suppose loving the the Bond series is that there's something for everyone and there's there's always a film that people maybe the majority underappreciate but there's always still that core love for that you know when people sort of you know that film that's at the bottom of your list and you think well it's maybe not the one I put on the most there's still a bunch of people who are incredibly passionate about it and absolutely love it and I think that's uh, I think that's uh, amazing yeah I think uh, this time is home my firm belief that. When I was first, you know, fallen in love with Bond, which was, was after the cinema screening of License to Kill in 89, then I started to watch all the films properly rather than just paying half an eye on them. And the one, one of the ones that struck me then as being amazing was I'm Actually Secret Service. And at that time, and for a long time afterwards, people would tell you that that was the rubbish Bond film, with a rubbish Bond in a rubbish film. And I used to say, well, this film's terrific. And George Lazenby's fine. And now, of course, we see polls. And how often do we see Unimagined Secret Service at number one, but almost always in the top mm. five or six? Yeah. And I think License to Kill, we were told for a long time, oh, yep. it's a rubbish one and whatever. And and now you're starting to see it in, in anyone's poll top 10. A lot yeah. of us number one, but you you very rarely see it out of the top 10 especially from people outside of the US. I think the USA are a little bit behind the curve on this. But, um, yeah, and I think it's just going to grow like on Her Majesty's, on, on Her Majesty's did. And as as you said, Chris, they are the two Bond films that seem a little bit different than your regular Bond film. But, but in a good way. But in a good way. They are still yeah. Bond. Yeah. The, the character yes. is still how we want Bond, mm-hmm. the, the Bond we just want. Just stretching, to just stretching the formula just here yeah. and there. But at its core, it's still mm-hmm. a Bond film. And I think that's that, that's the main thing. How long do we have to wait till we can go see Lost <laughs> to Kill again? Uh, are you going to watch it again, Steve? I, 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 if I can, I will. I, I'd, yeah. I'd love mm. to go and see it again. I'll have to look at the, the diary. Right. Yeah. Thank you, chaps. That was uh, very insightful. And we were very uh, privileged, weren't we, to see it on the big screen and mm. in that situation. And I hope we can do many more meetings mm. in London or wherever with fellow Bond fans. Well, I think we should do meetings either in the Midlands or the Northwest because uh, the pint, it was eight pound a pint in that pub. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, can, they can keep that, I'm afraid. <laughs> you were supposed to be in Istanbul last night. I'm afraid this unfortunate lighter business has uh, clouded your judgment. You have a job to do. I expect you're on a plane this afternoon. I haven't finished here, sir. Leave it to the Americans. It's their mess. Let them clear it up. Sir, they're not going to do anything. I owe it to Lighter. He's put his life on the line for me many times. Oh, spare me this sentimental rubbish. He knew the risks. And his wife? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment. And I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. And I require you to hand over your weapon. Now. I need hardly remind you that you're still bound by the Official Secrets Act. I guess it's... 
farewell to arms. Don't too many people. Hi everyone. That guy Sai, November man here. Just back from the pictures, just back from the cinema, always and sick all. Just seen it finally after all these years on the big screen. I'm uh, gonna be saying a bit about Love and Daylight as well. I don't have time to post last week, but thought we'd do a bit of a double dollar and I'll start with Love and Daylight uh, at that. I must say, it's a really, really impressive film. Love and Daylight probably encapsulates a lot of the 60s films, but just in this 80s era. And we're obviously getting a brand new Bond uh, with Tim Dolan, and boy, what a job he does. It's a really impressive film. Um, I need to be in a certain mood for it, but seen on the big screen really did show it off. I almost feel like that last or second half of the film has a bit of an Indiana Jones vibe about it just with the music and the action and set pieces like that. I don't want to say the villains let the film down they actually fit in really well with the realism of the plot and the intrigue of it all but I would probably say of the John Glenn 80s villains, probably the weakest in that regard but uh, if somebody said to me, Love and Daylight is their favourite film, or top five, I could totally get that. That's so much to offer. And uh, my partner, she also enjoyed it. I don't think she was too familiar with uh, Tim Dalton at that, but I've been waiting in anticipation for License to Kill for a long, long time. And the first thing I noticed when it came on the screen tonight was the age rating 15, so I knew we were going to be in the sea. Uh, as it's meant to be seen. None of this nonsense on the telly when it's all edited and shown on a Sunday afternoon. It was brilliant. I absolutely love the music, the opening. Uh, almost a Latin uh, American score, but it's got the James Bond theme. What I like is these films is they're not shy to use the Bond theme in different ways, and they use them at just the right times as well. When Bond's abseiling down from the helicopter to capture Sanchez, it comes on, and when he's infiltrating um, various parts in the film, the music just comes to life. But uh, Michael came in, I think, did the music. I think he maybe did a lethal weapon or other films at the time, but it's great. It's not Barry, but I'm not sure what Barry could bring to this, because this film, it's a very different movie, uh, different locations, etc. Uh, but Tim comes to life in this. This is his film, the, the Bond film that he wanted to portray. And opposite him is Sanchez, Robert Davi. Boy, he's incredible, isn't he? The thing with Davi and Sanchez is... I'm just going to say he's a bit of a bastard, but he's so likeable in the role and I love this whole part that he plays that he's really invested in loyalty of people around him. That's as important to him as anything and you can really see the cogs turning uh, when he's uh, getting in tow with Bond and Bond infiltrating everybody around him and trying to get in his head and stuff. But you've got Sanchez, you've got Bond, but I just love how on the surface it's more or less a revenge movie, but there's so much more going on and I couldn't wait to see uh, the finale. Uh, but before we get there, the there's an underwater, I say an underwater, an overwater sequence when Bond infiltrates uh, that one crests boat. He sneaks aboard and then he basically goes underwater and everybody comes after him and then he manages to destroy the drugs. And then he manages to mount the plane. Steal the point, steal the money. That sequence is absolutely brilliant. I love it to bits. So I think he, he, he skis on uh, above the surface and he climbs on the plane and he fights the guys. And then there's a scene later on uh, when the Milton Crest character's explaining it. And I can't help but laugh because it sounds absolutely ridiculous. But it's just spot on. But yes, the, the finale. Couldn't wait to see that. 
uh, with the tanker trucks and everything. And seen it on the big screen, it must have been the heat of just the environment, but the explosions were absolutely massive on the big screen. The noise of it all. It's so clever, the imagination they had back then in the Bond films to give us these action pieces, set pieces, and put them together. No uh, no CGI, none of that. Um, but a lot of people say they wanted that third Dalton film. And, you know, I kind of like the fact he leaves me wanting more. I don't know how some of you feel about that. Had we got that third film, would it have been the Goldfinger, um, the Skyfall uh, of his tenure? Uh, maybe we got the very best from Dalton in terms of films, and I mean in terms of performance, but it's a shame. Uh, I would have liked what else he might have brought to the role, perhaps had he done Goldeneye, uh, but those are both Elven Daylights, Lightens to Kill, top tier films. I'm so glad I've seen them at the cinema. And next week we're moving on to Pierce Brosnan, so I'll report back then, guys. Thank you. Alice Dryden gave her quick thoughts on Licence to Kill. Characters in the film talk about Bond's vendetta and it's seen as a revenge film, but really it's about integrity and loyalty. And those are the things that Bond has and Sanchez hasn't, and that's why Bond triumphs and Sanchez's empire crumbles around him, and he would never be able to understand why Bond has done it. Hey, it's Philip from CineCompass. I got to see License to Kill on the big screen again this week and I was quite surprised that it drew a bigger audience than all the previous Bond films that I saw at the cinema this year. People seemed to really enjoy it and the one-liners and the funny scenes with Q made everyone laugh, so it was quite fun. I always thought License to Kill is a great Bond film, but for a long time it clearly didn't get the credit it deserved. Now I think it finally does and I'm glad. Just like you guys, I recently interviewed Robert Davi and I have to say he's an absolutely brilliant villain, one of the best and one that actually gets a lot of action. I don't know if there's any main Bond villain that actually has more screen time and more scenes with Bond. Sanchez is charismatic, he's cool, he's realistic and he's the perfect antagonist for Timothy Dalton's Bond. Dalton, of course, is brilliant as ever and every time the end credits roll on License to Kill, I cannot help but think what could have been if he'd done more films, but I know most of you feel the same. So the story is straightforward and even though it's not based on a Fleming book, there's a lot of Fleming feeling in there. And of course, there are some elements from Live and Let Die, the brutal treatment of Felix, he disagreed with something that ate him and Bond searching the warehouse. I think it's great how they adopted that part from the novel. License to Kill has two excellent Bond ladies, some of the best Q scenes and a ton of great characters, including Dario, Milton Crest, Truman Lord, Sharky, El Presidente, Felix, of course, and even Professor Joe Butcher. Gladys Knight's theme song is one of my all-time favorites, I have to say that, and Patti LaBelle's If You Ask Me To is definitely my favorite end credit song. When I initially saw License to Kill for the first time, I wasn't too keen on Michael Caine musical score. I guess The Living Daylights was a tough one to follow, but that has changed completely now. I really do enjoy the License to Kill score. It does, however, remind me a lot of the other action classics of that time, Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, which is not necessarily a bad thing, just because Cayman's style was so distinctive. Is there something I don't like about License to Kill? I really can't think of anything right now. So it was great to see that on the big screen again. Tom Brunt gave us his thoughts after watching Licence to Kill. Okay, so I have just got in my car after watching Licence to Kill at the cinema and I have to say, what a surprise. How well that film held up to say late 80s. Wow. As a Bond film, superb. I think everyone knows it's one of my favourites and Dalton's my favourite Bond, but bloody hell. 
to sit in the cinema and to be able to watch a film like that that you thought you'd never see in the cinema again. Wow, absolutely fantastic. Strong storyline as ever, and we know it's one of the, the darker Bonds, excluding the depression of the Craig era. This one had meaning, proper meaning, and actually, I know I'm jumping to the end a little bit now, but when it, when it ends and Bond and Bouvier are in the pool at the end, it almost feels like that could be the end of the franchise. Bond legitimately retires and that's it. I had that feeling a little bit, I don't know why, but anyway. I mean, the set pieces are amazing. There's so much in-camera effects, and, and that's what I love about films, is in-camera stuff. What can we create physically? And, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, the score, Michael Kamen, I mean, just... I think that's the most Hollywood Bond score that we've ever had. And I think I've said this when I was a guest on the podcast previously. Just loud, bit bombastic, but played well to the themes. And it would have been nice if Cayman could have do a few more, especially GoldenEye. But I know there's some people that really like Eric Serra and his score. I'm not one of them. Naturally, wouldn't want to replace David Arnold for his sterling efforts. And it's a shame we didn't get to see more Dalton. I think Dalton was epic and could have done with a, another film to round out his trilogy, maybe. A trilogy, shall we say, but yeah, fantastic. And to watch that film at the cinema now after watching and listening to the Robert Darvey interview, oh wow, to think that uh, you guys have interviewed him, it's amazing. Yeah, what a fa- what a, I it's hard to put into... into, into words sometimes and it's the first Bond film I've been able to see at the cinema in this current run of the 60th anniversary as well which I thought was a bit of a shame there's a couple in there that are, and I'm gutted I missed The Living Daylight I would have loved to have seen that at the big screen I always wanted to catch on a Majesty's Secret service at the, at the big screen managed to luckily get to see that a few, few years ago yeah I'm hoping like the next one I get to see I would like kind of see uh, Goldeneye but I think the next one will probably be tomorrow never dies but yeah excellent uh nice little rambling review for you there as i cautiously drive through the streets of Preston on the way back to my hotel while away with work so good excuse to go to the cinema why not would you like anything to drink bed with a wine yeah same sure thing hon <laughs> shit it's dario he's bad news he used to be with the conscious before they kicked him out just the kind of guy Sanchez would send. You carrying? If they start shooting, you just hit the deck and stay there. La señorita Bouvier. Don't I know you from somewhere? No. Oh, yes, I do. You used to fly shutter planes for some friends of mine. I got a job for you. Why don't we go outside and we talk in private? Take your hands off her. She's with me. Nobody's asking you, gringo. He's with me. Keep your hands on the table. Here we go. That'll be three fifty. Do your friends want something? Let me get it. He's had enough. Run the tap. Okay. How did you get here? By boat. Where is it? Back behind this wall. 
Hello, Darren Bithel again with my take on Licence to Kill. Yep, no awful impressions to commence this part of the podcast and no poor alternatives on acronyms. I'm just being serious, like the film itself. Ich nothing personal, ich purely business. By this point I'd become a fully-fledged Fleming reader and began to realise that the films had only really scratched the surface of how and what Bond really was. This was Timothy Dalton's aim in portraying the character and with Broccoli sharing his desire, licence to kill was no longer sadism for the family, but violence for young adults and older. I remember seeing a double-page spread in one of the tabloids before its release with the headline Bloody Bond, with Tim in mid-crawl away from the flaming wreckage of one of the tanker trucks and thinking, ooh, her missus. Then there was the final shock, and the biggest one I ever suffered as a Bond fan, so far, unless they do cast Harry Styles as the next James Bond. Or would that really be a shock? Anyway, it was the fact that I may not see this film in the cinema. Rated 15? Surely not. But it was. Let's get it started. And on the first attempt in trying to see this at the Chester Rodian, my father, myself and a school friend who looked younger than me were refused entry. This school friend was soon after excommunicated. We waited a week or two when the fuss died down. This time around we applied the same strategy as when my dad got me to see Buster the year before, the first film I got to see in the cinema underage. Love Phil Collins, I have no shame in that, so there. Box office was like an old fashioned train station ticket office booth, in which you couldn't see much to the left or the right. So they couldn't see me waiting to the extreme right while dad got two tickets, and we were questioned when we finally got in to see the film. This was also the first time I went to see a Bond film twice in the cinema upon release. My sister was seriously ill during that summer and Dad took it upon himself to get me out of the house and get away from it all. And the second time he had to endure it, he had his head in his hands in disbelief as he saw a group of French students stand up and applaud after witnessing the wheelie Bond perform during the truck chase. There were no such actions performed during the screening last night in my second home. However, seeing this now for the fourth time on the big screen... I still relish the darkness and the majority of what this film has. In comparison to The Living Daylight, it may not look as glamorous, or indeed as expensive looking, and the script does lack a polish or two, with Maybaum's lack of involvement due to the writer's strike at that time. But I still think that this is the better of the Daltons, and is in my top ten. I like a film that goes a different way from most of the others, whether it's successfully executed or not and I don't buy into the constant observations that this Bond entry is trying too much to be a la lethal weapon or die hard. It may have shared certain elements, but it still feels like a Bond film, and not another 80s action film. What a golden summer of movies that was. Lethal Weapon 2, Indian His Last Crusade, and Batman for all its faults. Perhaps that's why Licence suffers amongst all those blockbusters, in that all those other films had a sheen of big-budget extravagance, whereas Licence to Kill looked a bit wanting in that score. Instead of being Champions League, it was looking Europa League to some. Timothy Dalton is relishing this, and it feels a much more comfortable fit in this film. You really believe and root for Bond in this film and believe his motive, which leads to what turned out to be an inspired choice to bring back a well-loved version of Felix Leiter. I mean, you wouldn't have felt anything about John Terry, would you? Certainly less if it was the ex-Chelsea defender. It was great to see David Hedison back, but maybe someone should have told him that they can hear him and see him at the back row. 
I did accuse Timothy at times of putting on a show. Well, David was certainly trying to compete with him there and winning. Was there a bit of sharing going on between Felix and Bond in relation to Della? The amount of affection she has for Bond makes you think she's gone for safe seconds with Lighter, and Lighter knows this, but this doesn't dampen the effect of Bond discovering her body and the obvious reminders to Tracy. I can't hear or say the word honeymoon in the right way anymore after seeing this film, which leads to possibly the best set of villains and henchmen in the series since Live and Let Die. Robert Darvey is still proud of his performance and proud of the film, and he bloody well should be. He's one of the best Bond films ever, and his weakness for loyalty plays a big difference in this film as opposed to the overused inferiority complex route, and he's possibly the most realistic of villains of the whole series too. The amount of research he made in building the part, based on real drug kings, and his shared desire with Timothy to get into the core of Fleming really proved fruitful. He has the best villain intro in any Bond film, until Mr Silver appeared from his lift. Anthony Zerba is superb as Milton Crest, someone who is totally out of his depth in his relationship with Sanchez, and there's a little part of you that feels for him when being set up. All the henchmen have their own mannerisms and tics to make them memorable, but it's obviously Dario that leads them all. John Glenn just gave him free reign and just took whatever little was on the page and amplified it to a chilling level. The Bond women in this film are a mixed bag. Carrie Lowell as Pam Bouvier, I can see her as a hard CIA agent, but the romantic side of her I couldn't buy. She is one of my favourite Bond women from a purely chauvinistic point of view. I'm sorry, dear wife. As for Talisa Soto, she doesn't jar as much for me. However, when she returns to Bond's hotel to declare her love for him, that, together with Pam's hurt, just shows what these Bond women are lacking in being classic Bond women. All the action sequences are top draw. The pre-title sequence is probably the most un-Bond feeling pre-title sequence of the series, even though Bond is in it, but sets the film up very well. By this point for me, the title sequences of Maurice Binder had really begun to run out of steam. The last truly great pre-title sequence for me was Spy, and everything else afterwards was either a spin-off or lacking inspiration. It's a shame it's his final one. The title song sung by Gladys Knight is one that becomes more enjoyable as time goes by, but it's the end title song, If You Ask Me To, sang by Patti LaBelle, which is a forgotten gem. Dirty Love sounds like a reject from any Rocky film, and something that Whitesnake would have smashed out of the park. The Michael Kamen score is certainly not as immediate as John Barry, or indeed any of the others, regarding listening to the soundtrack itself, but within the film it works. Gun barrel music is just perfect in setting the mood. Within the darkness of the piece, there are shreds of light, namely Desmond Llewellyn, who doesn't look out of his depth. However, his gadgets in this film do look a little on the cheap side. Furthermore, there's Wayne Newton, who doesn't overplay his part, a part which would be very tempting to overplay. The plot of this film is one of the best of the series and builds up to one of the best climaxes ever, with the thrilling truck chase and the biggest and best explosions I've seen in any action film. At times I felt I must pat myself in case I got caught alight. There is a question that the Hong Kong narcotics section is surplus to requirements, but it doesn't last too long to bring the film down. What this film really lacks is a good ending. The ending we have is not really rewarding. It's just added there to make the audience feel good. What we should have had was Bond going back to London and meeting M to resolve things, and M leaving him to hang as to whether he still has a job. The scene that Bond and M have in the film really leave me wanting more, and it's one of the best Bond-M exchanges in the series. The attendance was again very strong given the higher classification. Could it be viewed as a 12A these days? 
you could argue that there are certain scenes in the Craig films that push the limits to being a 12A these days, more especially in Casino Royale, but I suppose it's the accumulative effect of seeing a woman being whipped, exploding heads, half-bitten legs, and a lengthy version of a man on fire that tips the hedge. The only thing I found really excessive is the use of bad language throughout, which wasn't really necessary. Don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of bad language if used well, but in this it's just used as a statement to prove the film is hard-edged and doesn't suit. I mean, you didn't really have any bad language in a Fleming novel. I mean, there's plenty of un-PC stuff in there, but there's no swearing. If you want a more detailed film study style approach of the Dalton films, read Dr. Carey Edwards' book, He Disagreed With Something That Ate Him, which is a truly enlightening short read on the Dalton tenure. So in conclusion, this film may have more flaws than its predecessor. However, I feel more about it. I like its bravery. I like the real commitment to create the Fleming spirit. I think the overall lower production values add to the authenticity and realistic feel of the film. And I think this film is necessary within the series. John Glenn's Decade of Bondage are a classic vintage. I know that I may go too overcritical at times during these indulgent moments of expression, but I love these films right down to the bottom of my ever-fragrant socks. And John Glenn, I salute you, sir. If things remain the same, and Dalton had made the third Bond film with the 80s family involved backstage, we could have had a lighter film which sat between the two stools of Daylights and License, rather like a Star Wars trilogy, the original one, and the only one too in my mind. Although, I wouldn't have robots anywhere near a Bond film. Instead, we had to wait six years until the next Bond extravaganza to appear, and by then Timothy said bye-bye. A great shame, and even a greater shame that it's only until now that he's been fully appreciated, thanks in no small part to Daniel in changing audiences' tastes. You won't have to wait six years for my next review, however, I am taking a break from Saturday Night at the Movies for a while. How I feel about the Pierce Brosnan films is like the George Lucas Star Wars prequels. They were made without the older generation in mind. I'm not saying that the Brosnan films are as bad as the Star Wars prequels, well, apart from one, but the films contain elements that have already been done in previous Bond films, and done in an ironic way for the MTV generation. They worked as far as box office were concerned, but they left me feeling rather empty. Brosnan never had that consistent director like Connery with Terence Young, or Roger with Lewis Gilbert to really seal his interpretation. As a result, Pierce tried to get the approval of all camps, but for me, the resultant taste is too diluted for my palate. For many Bond fans, Pierce was their first Bond, and he's loved for that, and I totally respect it. I just don't feel nostalgic enough to see them in the big screen. Without the Pierce era, you wouldn't have had Judi Dench, David Arnold, Daniel Kleinman, Samantha Bond as Moneypenny, and Sophie Marceau as one of the better villains but everything else just fades. So I will return, but until then, I'll keep listening, of course. And maybe you guys may help me change my mind about the Brosnan era. But until then, bless your hearts. This is the master bedroom. I hope everything is satisfactory, senor. Sadly, good. I'd like a case of champagne. Pauline Girardi. Certainly, senor. If I could ask you to sign the registration cards. No, my executive secretary, Miss Kennedy, will take care of that. Miss Kennedy? Right here, please. Gracias. Fresh flowers every day. Thank you very much. Your key. Enjoy your stay. 
Ms. Kennedy, and why can't you be my executive secretary? <laughs> We're south of the border. It's a man's world. Thanks for everything. Your job's finished. I want to stay. Too dangerous. Enough people have been killed already. Don't talk to me about danger. I won't be safe until Sanchez is dead. Besides, you could use my help. Well, if you're going to stay and be my executive secretary, you'd better look the part. Here, buy yourself some decent clothes. Hey, how's it going, amigos? Buenos dias. So like a lot of people on Tuesday night, I went to watch License to Kill. Uh, I went again to the Odeon in Manchester to watch this. And uh, I was looking forward to it all week, to be honest. Um, it's it's kind of a shame we got to the end of the 80s ones. I've been so looking forward to this one because I missed out. I was about 13 or 14 when this film came out. So it was a 15, so I wasn't old enough to properly watch it. So we uh, just watched it on video with mates. I enjoyed it so much I was gripped through the entire film, to be honest. I, I just thought it was so good. It flowed well. There was no bad bits in it. There was no dips at all in the film. So I just went my way through some of my thoughts that I made. The wedding bit at the start, it's just kind of okay. The escape thing, you know, Sanchez escaping at the start and getting away. Yeah, it's just a bit, um, a little bit cringy, the wedding stuff. I felt that David, I love David Hedison's feelings, but I felt he was just a little bit overacting at the start. He's better later in the film, but he just, I don't know they've been doing TV for a while and he was a little bit out of the loop for a while, but he was just a little bit off on this one, just compared to say Live and Let Die. So I, I couldn't help noticing that. Um, and, and Della, I mean, Della's a bit of a bit tarty, isn't she? I think. I just get the impression she would have been cheating on Felix within a matter of months. I think she wanted to cheat with James Bond, I would say, ideally. But uh, I know he wouldn't be up for that. It's not that kind of bloke to do that to Felix. Anybody else's wife, fair enough. But uh, yeah, he wouldn't do that to Felix. Anyway, on to the song, which I think the song's definitely one of the best in the series. I've always loved this song. I think it's it's easily my top ten. Uh, I do love a good power ballad. It was, yeah, it was great to hear that on the big screen with the sound system. So uh, good old Gladys enjoyed that. I love a bit of soul stuff like that as well. You know, Sanchez is the next bit I'm going to mention. And uh, like a lot of people, I just think that he's amazing in this. Uh, Dami's just so good in this. He's obviously well known for other 80s uh, stuff as well. And he's got some equally iconic parts in other films. I particularly love him watching him in Die Hard. And it's good to see Grandel Bush in this film with him as well. Obviously not working with Sanchez this time with the same actor. But uh, Grandel Bush is good to see in this. Uh, the ladies, yeah, I think Kerry Lowell's for, uh, so good in this. I think she's mega cute. I think she even looks good before she gets that haircut. She looks great in that bar, you know, with the longer hair. When she's got that short haircut and, you know, in that dress in the casino, she looks absolutely stunning. And I quite like the fact she's quite, quite gutsy and ballsy as well and uh, doesn't take any shit. And uh, Lupe, I don't know, I'm kind of mixed on Lupe. She's obviously a beautiful woman, Talisa Soto. She is a little bit wooden. I think the character of Lupe, I think she's not a bimbo. She knows exactly what she's doing. I think she goes for the Benjamins where she can. Um, and, you know, especially with the old Presidente at the end when she kind of goes off with him instead. She sees a different opportunity to uh, get a guy with a few bob. Um, but yeah, the film itself, I mean, if you love the 80s action movies as so many of us do, I think this film fits in so well with the times. I, I just, I, it was just a big departure for people. I think they just weren't used to this kind of James Bond film. But it's just all so much the better for it, I think. Uh, it just, as I say, it fits the time of these kind of movies. And I think over time, people have started to appreciate that. And, uh, and why not? It's great to see Q in this. I just love the fact when he turns up in Mexico to help him out. A lot of Bond fans don't like Q out in the field, but 
I don't want to see him every film in the field, but maybe every other film if you get Q out in the field, that would suit me down to the ground. You could see Ben Wishaw doing it now as well. But seeing Des Llewellyn out there with him and uh, he got the bit of the biggest laughs of the night with some of his lines. I love the um, you would have been dead long ago line, you know, with the Q badge thing. I just think that's... Uh, God, I, I love that line to bits. And I think if this film was a book, it would it'd be one of... It thought of was one of Fleming's best books if it was one of his his books it just it flows like an old Fleming book and I just think it's um, again just all the better for it the tanker truck chase at the end is just absolutely amazing some of the best stunts in the series and I was completely gripped to my seat by the, by this bit of the, the movie and uh, it just seemed to go on a long time as well it didn't flash by too quick and uh the tension and the music for it as well. Michael Kamen's score is fantastic for this film, and I love it. Just it's got the Bond theme in it, obviously through the film as well, and just suits it down to the ground. And uh, lastly, I want to talk about Tim. It's obviously Tim's last film as Bond, and he's absolutely wonderful in this. He, he just gets Fleming. I think I know some people don't agree, but I think he gets Fleming Bond more than uh, I'd say each of the other actors. They all do a bit of it, but Tim just completely gets the uh, the Bond. Uh, style in this and uh, he, he, he just knows what, what the books are all about but yeah on to uh, GoldenEye next Saturday which I'm looking forward to I'm going to go watch that review on Saturday instead and I can't wait for that yeah thanks for listening my name's uh, on Twitter is the Northerner who love me but yeah uh, just uh, add me on there if you've not got me on there so far but yeah thanks for listening see you later bye hello there this is Chris Gofield from Nelson Pendle and I've just doing my contribution for this week's proceedings now Back in April, I discovered, much to my delight, and somehow how it had missed my attention, that both the view and the audience were showing the Bond films. And on April 16th, I drove on my birthday to the cinema at Blackburn, it quite excited with the knowledge of two things. One, I was finally going to get to do what I wanted on my birthday, which usually didn't happen. And two, in 16 weeks' time, I would be watching my favourite film at the cinema, Licence to Kill. Now, over the pre- previous couple of weeks, um, I've had Job watching these at the cinema, and unfortunately, as much as he's now as tall as me, almost, at, at such a relatively young age, he's not quite 15 yet, so not taking a chance would be turned away from any of the cinemas we went to. I happen to know a friend who's got his own cinema, with, built it himself, the 10-foot cinema screen, also armed with my newly purchased Blu-ray copy and enough Coca-Cola and Haribo's to kill an elephant for Job, we went and watched it. Now, it was a little late by the time we finished uh, to record anything with Job, and the following morning he was a little embarrassed and not be able to contribute too much, and so just asked me to mention that the few things that he wanted to say was, no matter what he saw, James Bond was completely unflappable, Timothy Dalton is brilliant, and it's not as good as the Living Daylights. So moving on from that, yesterday, having had a free night, I decided to drive to Preston and watch it on my own at the Odeon Cinema. And was I not disappointed? Well, I was a little disappointed because I had to watch a certain trailer about a woman who wants to buy a dress again for the 15th time, but never mind. But yes, what an incredible film with License to Killers. It is my Desert Island film. I would what I've watched this film more times than Boris Johnson's Lied in Parliament. And that's a lot. Dalton is awesome. Absolutely awesome. The stunts are incredible. I just think if you want to get someone to do explosions, it's gotta be John Glenn's films. They're just great. I absolutely love this film. 
but Carrie Lowell is pretty much almost joint second actually with Eva Green as my favourite Bond girl I just love both of them the characters they're gorgeous for a start um, Felicia Soho, Soto should I say is fantastic Franz Sanchez Robert Davy best Bond villain he puts more emotion using his eyeballs than anybody else does in the entire Bond franchise this film a lot of people have said it's, oh, it's very American or it's not quite Bond they don't like the soundtrack well each to their own I like the soundtrack I don't think it's very American it's not like Miami Vice it's just like Fleming's books it's mean it's gritty Bond comes out of it covered in blood and beaten up having won and saved the day and you come away from this feeling happy overjoyed in a good mood and glad to have watched a proper decent Bond film in a good mood you're listening Daniel a good mood not brassed off afterwards anyway I love Dalton Lewis I think his stunts are great I mean obviously he doesn't do everything but the bits where he is in it it just looks phenomenal I just think he's great I, I think it's great. nice to have uh, an extended thing for Desmond Llewellyn I think he uh, fully deserved an extended role and it's nice to know that this was probably his uh, biggest paycheck I saw this film back in 89 and came out of it as a 15 year old thinking that third James Bond film with Timothy Dalton is going to be absolutely amazing well I was slightly disappointed after that because it took six years and the golden eye then came out which I was overjoyed to have a James Bond film in fact so much so that when I watched it uh, with my mate they all went to the pub and I watched it again straight away afterwards and that's the next one so roll along Pierce by Dalton it's just a shame we only had the two but two classic cracking films not so sure how looking forward to these next ones I am in regards to restoration wise because I've got a feeling we're going to be slipping into the digital era and whereas with print you can do as much as you want with it and make it restored to unbelievable definition as you can see digital it's just there that's it it's not going to really get any better other than just adding extra special effects like George Lucas does anyway what do I know Oh, and as an aside, is it only me that when you put, when you pause in to take a photograph with your camera, you say, "Watch the birdie." You, well, anyway, you get the idea. Anyway, everyone have a good time. Keep on watching these films. Thanks, guys, for your amazing, amazing contributions on this. Every week you're putting fantastic, fantastic stuff up. It's mind blowing what what you're doing. It's fantastic. As a license to kill kind of motif. Keep on trucking, everyone. See you later. Patch here. I've had a bit of a turnover with License to Kill over time, as it wasn't one that really connected with me initially. Though I've unfortunately been uh, too busy to see it at the cinema recently, I thought I might give a brief overview of my general thoughts. Like what I said in the last Bond on the big screen episode, The Living Daylight is my preferred Dalton film as it is more in line with the traditional Bond story. That doesn't mean I can't appreciate what this film has going for it of course, as there's an awful lot of fun to be had with License to Kill. What immediately jumps out is Dalton's performance. This is the nastiest and most vulnerable he gets to be in his short two film tenure. The man living on the edge of his life indeed. He's truly the personification of Fleming's Bond here. Somewhat moody and reserved, but compassionate when it comes to interacting with the likes of friends like Felix and Della. 
and as with Kara in the previous film, his relationship with Pam Bouvier is very believable. You know, sometimes when you read the Fleming books, Bond can come across as a broken man, but also a lovesick puppy, depending on the moment. Something that, once again, I think has been carried over into Dalton's performance, and that maybe perhaps inspired Craig's portrayal too. It shouldn't be difficult to argue, but Franz Sanchez is easily a top-tier villain. Look no further than the amount of praise Robert Darby has received by fans for creating a performance that screams Dark Side of Bond. Much in the same vein as villains like Scaramanga, or henchmen like Red Grant. But Sanchez is one of a kind. The entire film is devoted to making you despise, but also admire him. You want Bond to get revenge for the things Sanchez did to Felix, and yet you can't help but find Sanchez as suave as Bond. Without a doubt the best villain of Dalton's two films, and also my favourite of the villains in the John Glenn directed films. So it's interesting how as a dark side of Bond, Sanchez also has his own Bond girl of sorts. Not exactly an evil one, but rather one in a morally grey area. Made in the mould of other secondary Bond women such as Plenty O'Toole or Andrea Anders, she's basically a prisoner of Sanchez, albeit a self-interested one who only sleeps in Bond for her own gain. She uses it as an excuse to annoy Pam after all. It's an interesting type of character, and I like how they took some of the ideas behind Bond women like her and turned it on its head with Electra in The World Is Not Enough. Anyway, my favourite thing about Life is to Kill has to be the inclusion of Q. Giving him a larger role in a film that has its own core identity in the franchise was a stroke of genius. It allows Desmond Llewellyn to do more than just deliver exposition, and instead come alive as a real character. The gadgets he supplies Bond are probably some of the best in the series too, particularly a shout out to the repelling Cumberband, used in a sequence that reminds me of one of my all-time favourite Bondian moments in Diamonds Are Forever, where Bond mountaineers up to Will and White's penthouse with a piton gun. The return of David Hederson is a breath of fresh air, after the disappointingly pointless and limited role of John Terry in Daylights. Hederson remains my favourite portrayal of Felix Leiter, and this film does a fantastic job of endearing the audience to him, even if they haven't already seen how chummy he is with Bond in Live and Let Die. By the way, who else believes that Della once had a relationship with Bond before she fell in love with Felix? Her interactions with Bond are very telling. As the final film in the series directed by John Glenn, I think it's safe to say he goes out with a bang with License to Kill. The action and stunts still have that consistent wow factor about them, and his framing of character moments never ceases to impress. By far my favourite scene in the film is when Bond confronts Pam in his hotel room, believing she has betrayed him by working with Sanchez, only to realise that he's thrown himself into a much bigger world than just his vendetta. That shot of a sweating, mentally exhausted Bond during this revelation is rivaled only by the later one of him after Sanchez's death, where he shows a mixture of exhaustion and satisfaction all at once. Brilliant performance and direction. Some might see this film as the revenge thriller follow-up to On the Majesty's Secret Service we never got, and there is some credence to that. But at the end of the day, it's a very enjoyable 80s action film with welcome Fleming-esque moments. I may not rank it as high as others, but be rest assured, I totally get the appeal of License to Kill. 80s Bond, and perhaps even classic Bond one might argue, absolutely ended on a high. Well... 
We both had close calls last night. You were just in time. Things were about to turn nasty. Who were those guys? Freelance hit team. What did they want with you? One of them must have recognized me in the casino. They were afraid I'd warn you, spoil their plans. So you knew them? I used to work for the British government. We kept dossiers on such people. Hmm. British agent. Café, senor. I knew it. Gracias. You have class. <laughs> Those men try to kill me. Who would do such a thing? Someone close to you. Cream, sugar? No. Did they tell you this? They were well briefed, obviously by someone on the inside. Did they mention a name? No. Only that they were expecting to be paid a great deal of cash by someone arriving in Isthmus tonight. You suspect someone? Everyone in my organization is 100% loyal. Then you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, well, I have to go meet some people. Why don't you rest here? No, I have to go back to my hotel. No, don't go to the hotel. Save your money, huh? I insist. Stay here. Enjoy my hospitality. Yep, you've guessed it. We have got so much License to Kill obsession and content that we have to spill over into a second part. So keep listening and click on part two of License to Kill on the big screen. Really Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.